And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight from the Land of Enchantment, actually from the Land of Monsoons, as we're going to talk about momentarily. We're having rain in the desert, which is really nice. Unfortunately, we're having a lot of rain, which is not so nice. Um, We're going to have a very interesting show tonight. We've got Rick Spence with us, and we're going to have Georgia Lambert in the third hour to kind of lift us up to the 30 to 50,000 foot level in terms of the things that Rick and I are going to talk about. Um, this kind of is a interesting collaboration, and you're going to hear at the bottom of the hour one of the things that uh, Rick and I collaborated on. Actually, we, uh, well, I, I, I don't want to give it away, so we'll just wait till the bottom of the hour. Um, starting with the news, if you go to, if you're new to the show, go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Uh, that will take you to our show page. And then you click on tonight's banner, which says dramatically, you want a revolution? <clears throat> you say you want a revolution. And, uh, just click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down just under the banner there. You'll see fast links to items, me, Richard, and Rick, to Richard's tonight, so we always differentiate. Click on mine. That will take you to my news items. Um, In case you haven't noticed, about uh, uh, 10 days or so ago, we talked extensively about the extraordinary floods going on in Germany and in Belgium. Well, the Belgians have uh, had another spate of really bad, bad uh, luck uh, in the little town called Dinant, D-I-N-A-N-T. They woke up to a huge cleanup job on Sunday because it rained. uh, Perhaps uh, one could say uh, cats and hammer handles, as my grandmother would have said, for a couple hours, and they had extraordinary floods. Fortunately, no one was killed. There were 37 people killed in Belgium from the previous floods uh, a couple, you know, a week or so ago. But this time they escaped, you know, that kind of tragedy, but they lost all their cars because this flood rushed down the main street, swept all the cars away, and then flooded all the garages. So um, they have a huge cleanup job. Again, this is emblematic of what's happening planet-wide, which is we are undergoing global warming. And when you have warming, when you have more energy in the system, you have more evaporation. Remember I talked with Dane, and he said – what was not happening on the west coast of the United States is you would think with warming you would have more evaporation of ocean water, you would have more storms, more uh, uh, convective activity, you'd have more rain along the coast. But of course, um, uh, he is of the opinion that there is heavy geoengineering going on along the west coast of the United States, and that is precluding the normal rainfall along the coast and there's severe drought in uh, Washington and Oregon and in Northern California and uh, even in parts of Southern California. That's been going on for some time. Well, this situation in Europe, which they have modeled in the computer and they're saying that this will increase in severity over the coming decade, is that as you have more energy in the system, if you don't do anything, if you don't tinker with the system, you will get more rain because of more evaporation and then Uh, more condensation. So Europe is suffering from this particular situation. 
and it comes as all this stuff does in cycles so you have artificial geoengineering efforts to ameliorate some of this superimposed on the natural cycles of the background physics superimposed on the metonic changes due to buildup of carbon in the atmosphere particularly methane and so you get general warming i mean ultimately um something has to be done on a much more drastic level and i'm looking to do the kind of show or probably shows where if you do the right kind of geoengineering there is such a thing as the right kind of geoengineering yes there is and uh, we will we will talk about it when i have assembled my ducks and they are all neatly in a row moving on item number two um the monsoons here are an annual situation in the fall uh, many many years ago when uh, robin and i were trying to go to the lowell observatory in northern arizona which is just a few hundred miles to the west of us um we needed to get there and to do observations using lowell's original telescope in august and august is the peak of the monsoon season here in the southwest and uh, we had an extraordinarily interesting time because robin was one of those rare people who was able to literally with her own consciousness affect the cloud cover it's called cloud busting it goes back to uh, wilhelm reich and orgone and the stuff we've talked with uh, dr james mayo about extensively on the show anyway um you can do use a technology to amplify this it's really the torsion field again of course or you can use your mind and robin literally was able to clear the skies over the lowell observatory over mars hill on this particular night in august uh, of 2003 when mars was closer than it had been for 60,000 years now not by much you know by you know what a few thousand miles maybe half a minute something like that but it was one of those stunning historic things and we shot videotape and we actually got the chance to use the telescope and you know take video through it this was you know Lowell's famous telescope which he used to discover uh uh canals on Mars and to extensively map seasonal darkening and waves of darkening and the appearance and disappearance of the polar caps and all that anyway uh that was all kind of up for grabs that night because of the monsoon rains this is back in 2003 well the monsoons have gotten much more dramatic <clears throat> in the decade um or so since and if you go to item number 2 you can see just what they look like here in the great american southwest now in terms of tonight's topic which is history i ran across this from one of our listeners who sent this to me apropos of absolutely nothing except it's a really cool story um there is some spectacular drone footage of the giza plateau of the great pyramid taken from directly over the apex and if you click on that link item number 3 you'll get a series of successively closer and closer views focusing right in on that platform on the apex of the great pyramid which used to, of course to be covered with an extraordinary uh coating of limestone blocks the blocks have long since been removed 
by the uh, building programs in Cairo going back, you know, a thousand years or more. And so what you're left with is the interior um, blocks making up the bull pyramid. And when you look at this footage in detail, it's really interesting to see how crude the interior blocks were. Again, completely um, upscaled and upstaged by the extraordinary precision of the interior passageways and the granite inside the limestone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of interesting from a historical perspective, which leads into item number four. As you know, I have said many, many, many times about um, our ventures into extraterrestrial archaeology, that the real breakthrough is going to come when somewhere in the solar system, either here on Earth or on the moon or on Mars or somewhere floating in the asteroid belt, et cetera, et cetera, we find the libraries. Well, this item number four, this is a really interesting story. This is a story of a family who have a family home and it's been passed down through generations. Um, the current owner, the current descendant of great-great-great-grandparents found in the attic, apparently in an old uh, trunk, or not a trunk, but a, actually a bureau, um, a little box, a time capsule from a little girl from 120 years ago. And in this box with her mementos, the things that she thought were important, so she put them away, and they've survived 120 years in the dark in this little cabinet, this little bureau. He found two glass negatives, and he develops them. And when you click on this, <clears throat> you will see a piece of video showing how he brought these images from this little girl who, of course, is totally into history now. She's no longer with us. But her time capsule, her personal you know, legacy to the world as to what was important at that moment in her life is preserved not only in the artifacts, but in the photographs, the two glass plate negatives that she left in this little box, which her great-great descendant then resurrected by developing them with modern chemistry. Anyway, it's a really intriguing story, and it's so emblematic of the overarching theme of tonight, which is history. And I cannot wait for the day when we find the libraries of the real history of the human species going back, well, in terms of some calculations, that history, if it's what I think it could have been, and left by whom I think it might have been, it could go back literally millions of years with video. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Anyway, that's a great prelude to my guest this morning, who is Dr. Richard Spence, who is our kind of resident historian. Um, Richard is a professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works include Boris uh, Sakhanov, Renegade on the Left, 
Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution from 1905 to 1925. Rick is the author of numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security, the Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, American Communist History, The Historian, New Dawn, and other publications. He's been interviewed countless times and has been a commentator and consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum, Radio Liberty, and documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. And without further ado, Rick, welcome back to the other side of Midnight. Glad, Glad to be back. Before we get into the substance of, of, of what we're going to talk about tonight, I always love these stories about New Mexico, the land of enchantment, the wild, wild west. And before we went on the air, you were telling uh, Kinthea and me and, and Keith this amazing story of what was happening many years ago just up the street. So why don't we begin there? Because, you know, the history of New Mexico, I find endlessly fascinating because it has one foot in the ancient past, the Wild West, and one foot in the future, certainly the future of atomic physics, a la, you know, what was occurring down at Trinity just south of me. So why don't we start with that? Because it's really kind of cool. Okay. Well, it's it's a spy story, and it's a spy story set in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So here's the story. And of course, there are slightly different versions of it, but here's, here's the basic one. Uh... For many, many years, and I think probably maybe from the 1920s all the way up to the 1980s, there was a pharmacy in the main plaza in Santa Fe, which I was told later at some point became a Haagen-Dazs ice cream shop. Right? Um, I'm not absolutely certain of that, but that's at, at one point that's what it's supposed to become after it stopped being Zook's Pharmacy. So anybody from Santa Fe, anybody who's uh, you know has some history going back their own ways, may well remember Zook's Pharmacy, Z double O K. Family was very well known. Father, I think, was John Zook, and uh, he had a daughter, I think, was Katie or, or Catherine, who sort of took over the business after he retired. And what is remarkable about Zook's Pharmacy is that it was used by Soviet intelligence, what we like to call the KGB, mm. as a safe house and a operative base, if you will, from around 1939 up into some indefinite time into the 1950s. It's, it, it seems to have operated uh, maybe as late as the early 1960s. And what it started out as, there was a, uh, a Soviet agent who was operating in Mexico in the late 1930s, by the name of Joseph Gregulovich. Joseph Gregulovich was, uh, he was essentially an assassin. And what he was involved in was a thing called Operation Duck. That's right, Operation Duck. Like quack and quack? Operation quack quack, okay? <laughs> and Utka. And it was um, the plan to assassinate uh, revolutionary immigrate Leon Trotsky. Ah. Uh, you know, Leon Trotsky had been kicked out of the USSR by Stalin, was considered Stalin's arch enemy, and there was basically a hit out on him. And Gogulovich was in, involved um, in, in organizing that hit um, and had, had essentially gone and rented an apartment 
uh, above Zook's Pharmacy, which they rented out. And he may even have started an affair with a daughter, but which was one of the things that he generally, you know, ingratiate yourself to your host. <laughs> and so what that that was what that was initially used for from around thirty nine to forty one was a, a base for planning Trotsky's assassination, also is a safe house. So if you had to get out of Mexico quick but you didn't want to enter the US legally, you could go there, hide out for a while until they found a way to smuggle you out. But then World War Two comes along. And the Manhattan Project starts, and Los Alamos is involved, and Sandia Labs is there, and is recruiting people to work at Los Alamos. And, you know, once the Soviets figured out that the Americans had an atom bomb project going, well, you know, that was, they were just all over that. And what they discovered was that, hey, you know, we've actually got this apartment we're still leasing <laughs> above this, <laughs> above this pharmacy. So... Uh, years, years later, one of the uh, KGB spymasters involved in this, a fellow by the name of Pavel Sudoplatov, wrote his memoirs. And his memoirs are controversial in, in many respects. But uh, Sudoplatov uh, told his side of the story, and that involved, and one of the things he said is that, well, we continue, you know, in, in the development of infiltration of the Manhattan Project, um, this this was a this was used as a as a kind of transfer point for information that messages would be sent to people working you know, undercover in the apartment above the pharmacy and that that continued at least up until forty nine um, but maybe maybe past that uh, the other story I was told uh, by someone who claimed that he had done it is that Zook's pharmacy, that the, this place of that pharmacy was so famous in KGB circles that if retired or traveling KGB men came through Santa Fe, they would have their pictures taken in front of them. <laughs> oh, the era of the selfie before the selfie. Yes, they, they would have selfies taken and say, hey, here I was at this place. So it was considered to be to be one of their secrets. And uh, so just in case anybody was interesting, how many acknowledged spies did the Soviets get into Los Alamos by 1945? Four. Uh, three of which we know, one of which is still seemingly an open question. And uh, that uh, was, was uh, the U.S. figured that out from a thing called the Venona Decrypts, essentially a code-breaking program in 1949. But then the KGB was informed almost at once that the Americans knew because Kim Philby, who was a Soviet spy and the British MI6, who just happened to be the liaison guy, CIA and others in Washington, was telling them everything. So uh, it's it's a interesting and involved story in many ways. Mine, mine, but mine. if you're you ever passing by and wherever Zook's Pharmacy was, uh, that building has a history to it that you'd never know by just looking at it. Well, the next time I get to Santa Fe, uh, Rob and I used to go up there, you know, quite a lot. Um, I will look and see if uh, there's a Hagen Dazs, and if there is, I will look upstairs. <laughs> okay, let us talk about the subject of tonight, which is, you know, as as I look around the culture right now, we are really in the horns of a dilemma. We've gotten to the position where half of us do not believe the other half of us. And I'm kind of upset because I don't think you can have representative democracy very long 
if people can't communicate, if there's no common language, and if they don't even agree over basic facts. I mean, what was it? Uh, um, which which one of the founders? Uh, not Jefferson. It was probably. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of some of the other founders. One of them said, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. We seem to be in a culture now where people feel entitled to their own facts. Remember Kelly, Kellyanne? You know, well, they're alternative facts. This was, you know, five years ago when she was out there on the driveway of the White House. So we're at this impasse where we cannot communicate at another level. And I'm going to get back into this when Georgia joined us. To me, this is almost biblical because, remember, the classic story of, of the Tower of Babel is that it was destroyed because they, whoever they are, God upstairs, you know, confounded their language. And I've wondered about that for decades. And I'm of the opinion now that it's not so much the language, it's the meaning behind the language. It's the perception of reality. We're, we're literally living in a culture <clears throat> where two people looking at the same set of information can come to exactly opposite conclusions. And that to me is very, very, uh, frankly, it's frightening because it, it, it cannot go on. Contract this back, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on tonight. We contract this back to the founding of the nation. So let's start at the very beginning, the American Revolution, given that there's a whole bunch of people who think and they think they're participating in a, a good revolution, even though they do things like January 6th. So you can have the best of intentions and the worst of outcomes. Let's, let's go back you know, to those thrilling days of yesteryear. <clears throat> Sorry about that. And talk about the American Revolution, starting with a pretty amazing question. Was it a revolution? Okay, well... I can backtrack just a minute. I'll, I'll segue back into that, but okay. I want to start first with something you mentioned earlier about people each claiming their own set of facts and that there can somehow be different facts for the situation. And here's one of the basic problems, and is that I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand what a fact is. Um, that it's, you know, a fact isn't something of the, the, the fact that a lot of people believe something doesn't make it a fact. It simply means a lot of people can believe in it. <laughs> you know, like at one point, probably most people thought that smoking was relatively harmless. Now, that, well, that, there were doctors that, out there pushing it, right. being paid by the yeah. cigarette companies. And and people would accept this must be a fact because because the doctor because the doctor said so 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 here's the sort of you know the, from a linguistic historical standpoint if you're going to look at an historical fact it's the thing it has nothing to do with believing anything it has to do with simply knowing uh, on on the basis of overwhelming evidence that something is or is not, or was, or was not. So let's say there was an event that happened in the United States, which we, we call the, the American Revolution, and that, that certainly occurred. I mean, it's, it's not like you can go back and somehow prove that it was all a myth and it never happened, or it was all kind of a dis misunderstanding. There was a organized rebellion against British rule in the American colonies, 
And as a result of that, and as a result of French intervention and a lot of time and fighting and money expended, the rebellion succeeded in breaking away from British rule in 1783 and established something that became the United States of America. That's a fact. The mere occurrence is a fact. It's indisputable. On the other hand, once you begin to go any deeper in that, once you begin to try to define, well, okay, what, what kind of a revolution or was it that this occurred? There was a rebellion against British rule that proved successful and ended up with the founding of the United States of America. But what exactly happened and why did it happen? And, well, those all become really opinions or theories based upon a more limited set of evidence. So none of those are facts. Now, a lot of things, a lot of stories or narratives about something, I mean, here's, here's pretty much what historians do, really. I mean, you know, a lot of people think we just sit down and we take stuff out of the big black book where everything's written and then we write it up for something else. But <laughs> no, that's not it. No, what, what we actually do is we make up stories. <laughs> that's, that's what historians are. They're essentially... You know, in in, uh, in you know, verbally or in print, they try to take the various assorted and sometimes contradictory facts, the things that happened, uh, you know, the natural disasters, um, you know, the monsoon, which is happening now. There, that's a fact. You can look out the window and you can see it happening. You can you can compare it with data from other monsoons and figure out whether it was greater or longer. Um, those are all issues that can be established now, but then you'll get arguments as to exactly why the monsoon is occurring in this particular way. Is it just a variation of the theme? Is it global warming? You know, people will argue about that. Mm. And those are opinions, not facts. So most of what actually passes for history are the opinions about the few facts. So what historians generally do is that they, they collect information and we create a narrative. It's essentially a script that is going to describe how this happens. Okay, hang on, hang on. When you say sure. you collect information, because <clears throat> when I was hired by NASA to write the history of the uh, 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 you know, Hubble telescope, I had to collect information in the form of memos, documents, letters – you know, official decrees from from NASA headquarters, a, a huge amount of paper because this was pre-email. And from that, I tried to distill exactly what you said. I tried to create, so I could write it, a narrative, a story linking these various facts, these hard pieces of evidence. And it was very hard. It was really yeah. hard because it was like I had a few bones of the dinosaur and I had to basically make – picture of what the dinosaur looked like from linking this letter with that, you know, memo, with that phone call, with that kind of thing. Yeah, so you're, that's exactly right. Putting together a dinosaur, you've got all these bits and pieces, and you're going to assemble the animal. You know, and sometimes they got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Many times. You know, like, Many but, you know, times. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, no, it's, it's a little head on the brontosaurus. No, it's okay. But, but see, that's, that's an example. They've got you know, the, the, the bones individually. You know, they, they just, the animal is a fact. The bones are a fact. But how they go together, um, well, that just depends upon, to some degree, how people want to 
you know, whether, whether they like it or not, or whether they were the first one to find it. That, that becomes a kind of choice that they make. Now, the interesting thing is that very often what you can do, in fact, most of the time, what you can do given the relatively few actual hard facts you have to work with is that you can create different narratives, both of which incorporate all those elements into a comprehensible story. I'll tell you what, let's hold it right there because I don't yeah. want to miss this bottom hour break. I want to give people a little background. When when Rick and I were coming up with this this uh, show tonight, we wanted a title. I wanted something ding and would hook you. And the Beatles came to mind. So here you are. This is why we're talking about revolutions tonight on the other side of midnight. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be all right? All right. All right. Say you got a real solution. Well, you know. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. We all wanna change your head. Tell me it's the institution Well, you know You better free your mind instead And welcome back everyone on this Sunday night, July 25th, 2021 Yes, the Beatles, so you want a revolution So that was the genesis of uh, our titling of tonight's show My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence He is an historian and we're starting with the revolution that brought us tonight to where we are, the American Revolution. All right. All right. 
Okay, that was memory lane. So please continue, Rick, please. All right. So you take the certainties, the, 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 the facts, the things that you know, you don't believe, you know that these things happened. There was a rebellion against British rule. It succeeded. A republic was established in the case of what we call the American Revolution. And then there are different ways to – there are different narratives that you can create. I'm saying that's essentially what historians do. We, we assemble as much kind of you know, raw data facts that you've got, but you, 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 have to, you have to do more. I mean, nobody would want to have a history book that simply said, well, then this happened, and then this happened, <laughs> and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and it would just go on. And you could do it that way, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. Well, you know, what people want to know is, why did that happen? What, which, which of all of these things happening should I pay particular attention to? Um, you know, what, what, what is it? This is the real question they want to know. What does it mean? All right? That's the whole. What does this mean? What does what does history mean? What does all this stuff happening mean? So historians, among others, and you know journalists to some degree, I think, work with these information to try to explain what it means, or at least the whys uh, and the hows. You know, so how could this happen? Why did it happen? But really, it all kind of boils down to what it means. So. To sort of come back to what I was talking about, this, this is how I think when people who argue with each other that they have a different set of facts, they don't have a set of a different set of facts. The facts have to be the same for both of them. What they have are different narratives. They have different stories to explain those facts. They have different stories about what those facts mean, well, let me, let and me, let then me, let me, they think the narrative is the fact. Let me stop you there because the situation we're facing tonight, and there are several areas where it's really the third rail. It's the 2020 election. It's the whole you know, COVID-19 thing. It's vaccines. It's not that people disagree over interpretation. They literally accuse the other side of making up the facts of a of a set of lies of such a gargantuan and Brobingian scale that it boggles the mind that they can actually believe that an entire planet can be convolved into the levels of conspiracy they're proposing with perfectly straight faces. So I think we have gone far beyond merely interpreting what the facts are telling us. There are huge swaths of the American electorate who absolutely argue that the facts that one side believes are completely made up, fake, fake facts, not real, not, you know, numbers are jiggered. The institutions have been bought. Corruption runs rampant. There is huge hidden agendas. They deny the facts themselves, period. Because of those facts don't see this is where the narrative displaces the facts themselves. Nobody's really looking at the facts. What, what they've done is they've bought into a particular narrative. If the facts, it's like the old argument that somebody used to say, don't confuse me with the facts, right? <laughs> okay. Because often they, they can be kind of confusing because they're often not quite as clear as they, they would seem to be. But people have these competing narratives. Really, what they have is they have like their own little individual religions. And the point is, is that if my religion is true, then all others are false. That's it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if, my, if I believe that my narrative is true, if I believe, I don't know, if I believe my narrative is true, 
then anything to the counter of that must be a lie. That's, that's the only explanation. It, it's, simply, it, it, it's simply a lie. So there's no interest in, in, in examining well, the other guy's narrative because it's a lie. It's, it's more than a lie. It's a malevolent lie. Yeah. It's a lie designed to kill you by some incredible arcane means based on the facts that are not facts because they're being made up by the other guys. I mean, that's why I'm very concerned tonight that this is not like any other revolution this American experience has gone through because I don't remember, maybe you do, you know, you're the historian, I just kind of play at this stuff, but I don't remember a time where people fundamentally disagreed on simple facts. This happened on that date, period. This set of people died because of this cause, period. That kind of thing. In some ways, it's it's the curse of too much information. Ah. It was, you know, not to sound totally reactionary, but <laughs> you can... You know, you can you can go back and you can look at the past. When I'm talking about the past, I'm not talking about 1950. But let's let's go back to the kind of pre-industrial era. All right, let's go back before there was any electricity. Let's go back to the 18th century, the the century of the American Revolution. Uh, you know, when the whole machine age was just sort of beginning. But you know, the quickest way you could get anywhere was to walk there or have a horse walk you there. Uh, you only could illuminate the, the night by fire. And uh, there basically weren't any machines to speak of, and everything done was done by muscle power. So as incredibly primitive from our modern perspective as we would see that in, in many ways. I mean, one of the things that often seems to overwhelm modern people, if, they, if you look closely at things like building, uh, con- construction in the back, is how long things took. And, and how just laborious and, and the amount of physical effort that was involved in it. And people look at that and go, oh, that's impossible. I could never really do that. Well, the thing is, actually, you could. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what people through most of human history had to do. It was just basically a lot of sweat equity into, into, into anything. Which kind of so, looks back to our pyramid story. You know, yeah. people look at them now, and like landing on the moon, they say, oh, humans could never have done that. It must be aliens. Because they've no. never built anything. Yes, look, the thing about human beings, they're like ants. <laughs> if they're going to build something, they're gonna, it, it may take them. What we can't conceive of is the amount of sheer physical labor and time it would have taken. But at that particular point in time, I, it didn't really matter. It, it took as long as it took. Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily a matter that things had to be completed within, within a single lifetime. Well, but anyway, to sort of bring it back to where I was going, the, the thing about those times is that as primitive as they were and as, uh, you know, as extremely limited and class-based and everything else, there was a certain simplicity into it is that there was relatively little to occupy most people's minds. There, really, there weren't a lot of – there wasn't much to base any kind of counter-narratives on. You know, if you lived in a society, for instance, in which there was a king and there had always been a king – or a duke, or a prince, or a queen, or an empress, or a czar, and you were basically told by the powers that be that that person was placed there by God, who determined everything, and including your lot in life, um, you know, 
where it was a rarity if you could read, which was kind of interesting because there really wasn't a whole lot to read, but that there there was in many ways only sort of so much information that the average person's mind was was going to be inundated with. And one of the things that we've seen, I think especially has accelerated with, you know, the thing we like to blame everything on the Internet, uh, but one of the things that it certainly has done is to make a tremendous amount of information and opinion. I mean, my God, everybody on Earth apparently has a, a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I Well, remember I Roddenberry's rule, if it's real, it will be uh, on television. And everybody's taken it to heart, even if they've never heard of Roddenberry. And they all have their own YouTube channel. And 99.9999% of them are junk. They're pointless. Well, They're it's just... one of those things that uh, I, I should, I, you know, to, to a little correction to intro, I'm, re- I'm a retired professor of history for the University of Idaho. So um, I, re- I retired last year, so I'm, I'm a professor emeritus now. Uh, another bio to be updated on the other side of the <laughs> okay. Well, it's no big deal. But is but it like – wait, 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 wait. Is, is it, are you really retired because it's like CIA? Do you ever really retire from the company? <clears throat> I think if well, you Well, I, I, I keep working on, on things for the, the great courses and the rest of it. So I'm I'm some ways maybe busier now than I was before. But I'm only doing what I want to do. See, that's the difference. Ah. Um, that's the difference in this case. But one of the things that I have – in my you know luxury of a certain amount of spare time and with nothing else to watch otherwise, I've sort of I've delved deeper and deeper into the bottomless pit of YouTube. Oh no! Oh yes, there is God. there is you know um, it's bottomless. There's, there, well, there, there's there is there, and the thing I've been watching is not to plug somebody's show, but the thing called Primitive Skills, and it's actually you just watch this guy make iron from iron ore. Wow! <laughs> you know, to build. Build a kiln out of mud, and you know, and go out and collect rocks and smash. But, but it's, it, I don't know. It could be. I'm certainly worse than watching paint dry to a lot of people. <laughs> but I kind of find it fascinating because, you know, well, my wife doesn't get it. My wife just says this guy's just smashing up rocks, and I go, well, he has to make them smaller. Yeah. <laughs> and he has to make those smaller still. But there's there's a huge amount of stuff out there which, in many ways, is is it, it's interesting and it's educational. But there's other stuff. And I'm not going to go into it, but <laughs> but it, it it involves just absolute blatant fakery. The whole thing is just fake from beginning to end. Or let's put it this way: that's an opinion. I you know I don't buy it for a minute. <laughs> See what these. But uh, let's let's put it this way: there there shows that have to do with uh, sort of ghost hunting, right? Yeah, it's amazing how many ghosts those shows turn up. I've uh, never, well, I've, so far, yeah, I've never yeah. seen one, but these people have experience, and they have them on cue, and they can put them on television with commercials. Uh, yeah, what I see is people jumping around, scaring themselves in the dark. <laughs> but at any rate, but that too, I, I find weirdly fascinating because. You know, once you're sort of in on it, once you get in on it, and you don't have to be that clever to figure it out, believe me. Uh, there isn't any great intellectual depth required to, to see through this crap. But it was it, – it's fascinating because you can you can kind of see them creating this as they go through, and you get to a point where you can kind of predict what it is they're going to do next. 
Okay. Sometime in the next 10 seconds, someone's going to go, is going to say, did you hear that? And of course, you don't hear anything, but they will probably did it. But it's, but there are, there's a mass of believers in these shows. And that's really what keeps it going. I mean, it's entertainment for people who are watching it, but the, many of the people who are watching it seem to take this completely seriously. And well, you, I, that's you, the, you have heard the expression relative to the internet, uh, clickbait. The idea that you yeah. want the maximum number of clicks, and of course, with YouTube paying like point oh oh one cents or whatever for every click, uh, people have an incentive to make it hype, to make it interesting, to oh, make yeah. it dramatic, and so you have this forcing function that ex- exaggerates everything for an audience, which will ultimately wind up increasing the bottom line. Truth does not lend itself well to that model. No. Not at all, <laughs> but it's – and I just use that as an example of how people can, you know, and uh, – look, I, I'm – you know, again, I'm not claiming any, any great insight to this. It's just, you know, if you watch and pay any attention You at have all, too much just, time on your you, hands, Rick. I you, can, you, you, can see, you can see the fakery. You can, you can just see it coming off of it like steam off a pond. But you see, right. there, are, there are different categories. Like the first set of shows you talked about is people physically making something. It's like when we used yeah. to live, you know, not far from uh, Jamestown or, you know, up in New England, some of the old colonial villages where they recreated everything, including the costumes. And you watch the blacksmith, blacksmith make horseshoes, you know, beating the iron, heating mm-hmm. it in the floor, all that kind of thing. That's not fakery. That's real. But when you get into the other category of opinion or, shall we say, suspicious activities, the sky is not the limit and there's no way – I want to do a show, and I've got to you know, remind some of my sources on this. I want to do a show about epistemology. How do we know what we know? Because I have a feeling that this goes back to a basic failing in, in you know, education starting in grade school. No one is teaching anymore. How do you separate the real stuff from the junk? Well, there's plenty of junk out there. Oh my I mean, God! You but know. but it's but this is this is it. You know, and people get into these. Um, something that I have never you know gotten involved into, but you certainly could have read it. You know, apparently where everybody who thinks they have an opinion about something or has some kind of particular obsession, they all get together and they start you know bouncing off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in some cases, interesting things result from that. But usually, it appears that what happens is that people just go deeper and deeper into some sort of rabbit hole, and they all begin re- see they begin creating their own sort of factual universe out of things. And uh, it, it can lead to a lot of bizarre behavior. But that's, that, that's what I sort of meant by, by the, the curse of too much information. And, you know, some people can kind of handle that, and, but a lot of people really can't. Um, they're, they're kind of used to, you know, it, it's one of the things that I think advertising. Well, anyway, let's, let's blame it on advertising. Um, <laughs> Why not? Why not? Mad but, men, you know, mad men. Great well, let's put it this way. One of the things that advertising conditioned us to was getting used to being lied to. Because I think most of us realize that if we watch an ad, we don't think that that ad is absolutely true. 
we know that someone, if you, you know, if you have any process in there, you, you're thinking, you know, if someone is trying to sell you something. So they're going to sell you something and they're going to put it forward in the best means possible, but that there's a pitch, that there's, there's some sort of reason why that they're doing this. Well, but, it's even, Rick, it's even worse because I know people who think when they see ads that they have to be true because the government has intruded so much in our lives in so many areas that there must be some bureau that holds them to a standard of telling us only the truth. And so there, this kind of nanny state has crept in where a lot of people, when they watch television, it becomes this immersive experience where they're not critically uh, thinking about ads. They're in this semi-hypnotic state, which television tends to inculcate. Uh, and they, they really tend, or up until recently, now, of course, there's a huge cadre of people. I think about half people consuming information are eschewing television totally and they're getting their news from Facebook because they think that's truer, which of course is really bizarro. Well, they think that they're trusting the person who's telling it. To exactly. Them. But, but yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, you know, go back to this thing with, with advertising. I think it's just, you know, it's like you can be punched in the face so many times and you don't <laughs> begin to feel it anymore. Or you become, uh, you know, nose blind. Okay, the stink is still there, but you just don't notice it anymore. And with advertising, with the constant, you know, advertising basically lies. Um, and or it, let's put it this way, advertising deals with a narrative more than it deals with facts about mm-hmm. its product. And often it tries to, you know, masquerade those, but it's, it's very selective. That's the other thing you can do is what facts do you want to present and what ones do you want to do hold back? But in, I think what that's done is it, it, it began this process of desensitizing people to even you, know, you, you just quit really thinking about commercials. You just generally trying to find a way for them to get over with, but still they were constantly bombarding you with this particular message, which on one level, you know, is probably just, you know, BS to get you to buy something. But on the other hand, at some point, I think the brain just kind of turns off to that. And you just begin, you, there, there's a, a critical facility that just is overwhelmed. Do you remember, and, and this is a wonderful diversion, so we'll just continue with this. Okay, folks. You remember when they used to have real car commercials back in the 60s and some of the 70s when car companies really put muscle into ads? And I remember one in particular, Chevrolet took by helicopter the pieces of a Chevrolet to the top of one of the mittens, which are these huge spires sticking up and out of Utah. and And they put this car, they reassembled this beautiful Chevrolet convertible and they have this beautiful model lolling uh-huh. there in the back seat and they had a helicopter shot. And I remember seeing that and I, I wasn't really motivated to go out and buy a Chevrolet because my constant thinking during the entire commercial was how the hell did they get it up there and how the hell did they get her to sit still to film it? <laughs> And how much did they have to pay her? That was and, and, and who had to convince somebody this was a good idea and what company bought it? Because it must have yeah. been a fortune and I'm thinking all these things and not, you know, looking at the the allure of the Chevrolet that and I remember huh. it was Chevrolet, which of course I think that's yeah. part of what you're supposed to be left with, the name of the company, the car company, it made an impression. Well, it did that. It made an impression. But it wasn't fake; it was real, 
And there were stories well, afterwards, you know, there's the, the Cleos where they award, you know, a, kind of like a mini Oscar for the best commercials in a year. And they described in some magazine I read how they did that. And it was an incredible gargantuan engineering effort for a minute long commercial. Well, it's like building the pyramids. It yeah. needed to be done. And so, well, we'll figure out a way to put this car up on top of the pinnacle. Now, the other thing is, what did all of that have to do with the car? It was designed, I think, to make you remember that it was a Chevrolet. It was a Chevrolet and also to remember that it was a Chevrolet and some sort of like – I mean, the idea was that, one, it was a place you couldn't drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and nor would you actually want you would, no. why would you ever want to have your car on top of a pinnacle? <laughs> I mean, but see that's it, it makes it makes no sense, but it's cool, but it was great television. It, it, it's great television. It's, it, it creates this kind of visual. But there's a type of thing where the, the commercial has told you absolutely no useful information whatsoever about the product that it's selling. What it did is that it just posed the product in a sexy pose on top of a pinnacle with a pretty girl on it, and that's the thing you'll remember, and it doesn't tell you anything about the performance, gas mileage, or reliability of the car. One thing I do remember is the way they got the model to loll there in the back seat looking salubrious. They had a producer, an associate producer, hiding on the floor, and he firmly had his hands clamped around her ankles. That's how terrified she was of doing it. Well, I can't say I'd blame her. I'm, I'm not a big <laughs> fan of, of – uh, that, that sounds like a nightmare I had once where a car was on the top of a, mm. of a pinnacle. I couldn't figure out how I got there. But anyway, with this you know, this, this question about what people are fighting about is they're fighting about these narratives. Let's, let's take that back to what you were mentioning before about the American Revolution. And this question was like, well, you know, if, if you want to get into the different narratives, was it, was it, a, was it a revolution? Well, oh, I, let, me, let me sort of bring up very briefly sort of two different narratives that you can come up with about what okay, – there was a, a rebellion against British rule in the American colonies, and that led to the successful establishment of – the United States. So that, that's what we can agree upon is, is the, the fact. So what, what, what really happened and why did it happen? Well, you know, the general narrative, let's put it this way, the kind of uh, traditional narrative was that this, this was a divinely ordained act. Um, you know, it's like there, there's an angel standing at the signing of the Declaration of Independence whispering. Was, this was all guided, guided by the highest ideas motivating the, 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 the most uh, honorable of men driven by the most noble of intentions. There is nothing that occurred here that was not the work of sort of divine providence and of the highest representation of human nobility and thus created the, the freest, uh, the most robust country that the world had, had ever seen. Right? That's, that's the heroic version of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you can look at the same events and you can argue what you had here was a colonial rebellion, okay? It was a colonial rebellion in the same way that all the colonial rebellions that occurred in Asia and Africa, uh, all of those are the matters of the same thing. You had a colonial system, you had a mother country whose rule became increasingly unpleasant to a an emerging uh, mercantile class, which believed they could do better on their own. 
they then developed nationalist sentiments, fomented a rebellion for purely selfish economic ends, which they cloaked in high-sounding rhetoric, and which led to not a revolution in any real political sense, but simply a transfer of power from the old regime of the British crown to the new plutocracy, which had now enshrined themselves as the ruler of a smaller independent state. And that it was driven purely by economic incentives and all the high-sounding rhetoric was just that and exhibit number one to demonstrate it for all the talk about men being created equal and divine freedom. Somehow you found it okay to continue with slavery without even missing a beat. Now, those are two completely different irreconcilable narratives that can be used to explain the same chain of events. Mm-hmm. And I'm not selling either one of them. <laughs> I'm simply using those as an example of how you can. All this is really based upon opinion. It's based upon things that you don't know, but that you believe or that you choose to believe about them. It comes back to that question again of what these things mean. And this, and what those two narratives do is they simply give different meanings to the same actions. Now, that's, you know, that again is pretty much kind of what keeps historians employed to the extent that we are, because uh, <laughs> there are really very many. But that's, but that's also the whole source of, uh, of the ongoing, ongoing argument about this. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those things that argue that, that, that history, if you go about it properly, probably really is a kind of living, breathing thing because it, it can change. You know, you can, you can, can create a different narrative or you can tweak the narrative one way or the other. And it's a, you know, there's, there is a battle back and forth. But I think generally people within that realm accept the fact that we're, we're arguing over narratives. We're not really arguing over facts and we know their narratives. Whereas elsewhere, that distinction has, has completely disappeared. You know, everybody goes, has got their own narrative. That, that is the absolute truth. Anything which differs from my narrative is, is, is a damnable lie. Break time. Mm. Okay, we are obviously at the bottom of the hour. Actually, no, sorry, the top of the hour. I'll get my clock turned upside down here shortly. Um, my guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're talking about perceptions of truth versus truth or reality and facts versus perceptions of reality and facts. And uh, never the twain sometimes shall meet. Um, You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. The other side is midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel 
or as an environment for your endeavours. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, July 25th, 2021. We're talking about, well, the topic tonight is revolutions and the current one, which we're kind of in the middle of. But the real subtext for this is a conversation about reality. How do you gauge reality? There are facts, as Rick and I have been discussing, and then there's interpretation. There's thinking about, there's narratives, there's stories, there's, there's um, you know, made-up stuff linking those facts together or trying to. And then there's the new paradigm where we are so inundated with so much information. I mean, we're really drowning in information, except a lot of it is not information it's it's opinion and made up facts to suit opinion like that old joke you know which comes first the horse or the carriage anyway rick uh, please continue because i think this is a most important narrative uh, line of thinking because i think we're suffering at some deep societal level with a group of people who've never been told or taught or you know, tutored in how to separate fiction from facts. And they take an opinion as factual based on where it comes from. If they believe the source, if they agree with the source, it must be real. And if they don't agree with the source, it must be fake. And again, the future of the Republic, I believe, is is going to founder unless we figure out a workaround. Well, workaround. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that. Um, there's, you know, it, it, we were talking about the, the creation of narratives. So you, you create it, you create a story. And you know what kind of stories work? The good ones, the good stories. The one that's the you know, not necessarily the most logical, not necessarily the one that, you know, is really the closest to the truth, if there is one, but it's the best story. It's a good narrative, okay? This is one that really, you know, it hits all the right points. It grabs you. Uh, and it, it grabs you, you know, it's, it's, it's sexy, it's, you know, it's got things going on. It, it, it's, it gives a better explanation as to why, and it gives it a more, more uh, satisfying idea of what the meaning of something is. And that's often what people want things to have. They want things to have meaning. And if you can explain to them that this particular, if you can turn this event into something which, you know, is, is a divinely ordained uh, event, um, well, that, that makes it a lot more interesting that something just happened without any particular reason. So in this sort of battleground, which is not a battleground between facts, because facts aren't fighting each other, narratives based around those facts are, the better narrative is going to generally win. 
not the one which is the closest to the truth. It can be it can be the one which is the furthest from it, but it is the better story. But of course, it, it's got to convince people. It's got to, so and that's so why. It's, so it's, yeah. the, it's the it's the better storyteller. It can be the better storyteller, but you got to work with a better story. You know, the better story, better storyteller can can improve it on somewhat. It's but then that again has a lot to do with the personal. Then you enter the other factor, sort of the, the personal taste and existing beliefs of the persons who's already going to listen to these, because people are going. To, you know, one person can listen to a narrative and be utterly unconvinced by it, and someone else will buy into it immediately. Why? Because it already connects or it reaffirms things they already believe. People really love to have their existing beliefs affirmed. Okay, nobody ever, you know, it's one of these, I, you know, what was it like Dale Carnegie said, you know, never tell someone they're wrong. <laughs> okay, and and believe me, that doesn't work. It's like, hey, look, you're completely wrong. Look, let me tell you how it is, buddy. And, you know, okay, that, that just really doesn't work. And it did nothing else. It will probably. Well, let me, let me just, stop you there because yeah. this is, we're in uncharted territory. And I know we're going to talk about a series of historical precedents for some of the things that were happening right now. That's what I wanted to do. But one of the areas where there is no precedent is this is the first time in modern human history where we do not have filters like editors, like anchor people, like spokespersons, like official filters that basically digest and get rid of the junk before we see it. I mean, you know, going through books and the editorial process and books, newspapers, magazines, all those things have a set of people, a tier of people, multi-layered, where the the distillation, the, the titration of real stuff from fake stuff, from mistaken stuff is is part of the profession and when you see it in print, a lot of people have looked at those words and tried to separate fact from fiction. I mean, it used to drive me nuts. I would write these pieces for major national magazines, and I'd spend hours on the phone with fact checkers who would make me support and document the stupidest little details in something I wrote about NASA or something I wrote about well, my, my science was my beat, but they really made you pay attention to your sources. Did you have more than one source? You know, traditional journalism. There was a whole cadre of professionals in a process that distilled down to this is what happened. This is who it happened to. This is when it happened. And you can really take this to the bank because it's been checked by multiple levels of professionals whose only job is to take and check that it actually is real. That, when you're dealing with Facebook, totally, totally is gone. Everybody is their own publisher, editor, copy editor, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And YouTube is even worse because the main thing for YouTube is to get your damn mug on a camera and get so many clicks. Well, you know, there's also the situation that I have been in of, you know, what if you think the fact checker is wrong? <laughs> I mean, 
you know, I, I've I've dealt with that, and they generally do a very good bit. But but sometimes it's uh, let, let's let's say there, there's 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 a kind of historical case out there, and in, in, in which you, you can find one source that says there were, you know, twelve people drowned. Another one says eleven people drowned. Someone else says thirteen people drowned. Right, and and you can do that. You can find different news reports, and they'll give you slightly different numbers that will vary around that. And uh, it was the type of thing where I think I'd said something that, well, 12, I'd actually seen, you know, something like 11, 12, and 13. So what I said, well, I'll say a dozen. Okay. Yeah. That, that pretty much, because yeah, I don't know exactly, but you know, that, that, that conveys what happened. The ship went down and a dozen people, whether it was 11, 12, or 13, it's all around the dozen. And the fact checker was that, well, no, as far as I found it says it was 13. I go, we find another one says it was 11. And it was like, well, and, and the, the, their assumption of that in was that it, it had to be demonstrated that there there had to be one of them, and it probably was. But the point was, you really couldn't tell. You would have different sources at the time who would give slightly different numbers, and that was one. So eventually, you either just pick one of those numbers and go with it, or you say around. Okay, so around twelve people, and that that's how we eventually resolve that. But notice the the way to re, to eventually resolve it. The thing to come down to, the fact, the ultimate fact you could come to was that around a dozen people drowned. You couldn't say exactly how many otherwise. All of those, whether it was ten, or eleven, or twelve, or thirteen, was a matter of opinion or the information the person had at the time that differed. So the only statement that you could make that actually affirmed the basic fact was that around twelve people drowned. Yet it's it doesn't that that's the type of thing that often doesn't give the precision that someone wouldn't want. But it also leaves aside something else. It leaves aside that there really was, you know, out there somewhere, there was an exact number. Because exactly eleven or twelve or thirteen people drowned. You have to say around 12 if you want to be completely factual because you can't confirm which one of those was, but it was. There's that kind of ultimately the unknowable real truth that you can never quite grasp, that you can only bring that down to a range of possibility. Is this called yet, <clears throat> the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of history? Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> it's it's um, It's – very often in historical events, the closer you look at, the less certain things become. Mm. It becomes you – know, people's motivations in particular become murkier. But see, this goes back to, to, to education because when I was growing up, you know, they made us read these endless textbooks full of specific facts. And it was wow. like, you know, I, I eventually rejected and I kept thinking, how do we really know given that – <laughs> Most of the things in my experience were people would lie, people would be mistaken. You know, I mean, much later uh, when I was reading Sitchin and his, you know, chronicles of, you know, ancient Sumerian texts, I got really jaded because I had been misquoted by no uh, none other than the New York Times. And I knew that a story that had been written three days ago could not be, you know, compared to a story written 3,000 years ago in terms of specificity and the number of tellings and the source material. In other words, 
to me, history has always had this fudge factor, but I'm probably an anomalist in that, you know, one of Hoagland's first laws is all science is approximate. It, it, that's often the best you can do. I mean, an approximation, an average, a range of possibilities in most cases is what you can. But we're not taught that really. in school. We're taught that there are specific, quantifiable facts, things that stand well, still. Well, we, we were we were told that the stuff in the book we were reading were true, and it was the facts. And sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't. You were just taking somebody's word for it, mm. weren't you? I mean. You know, we were talking a little while ago about, you know, 200 years ago, the battle, good old days. And, you know, it was pretty simple if you go back 200, 300 years ago. The person who told you what was true basically was the priest, right? Mm-hmm. Considering that probably you didn't even go to school and have teachers, you got the view of the world essentially from the priest who told you what was what, right? God was in heaven. The king was on the throne. Uh, this is your lot in life. If you do this, this, and that, you're, you're, you'll be saved. If you don't, you'll be damned. That, that was it. And it didn't matter if that was absolutely true. It didn't matter whether none of it was true. The point is, but it was the only kind of collective reality that most people had. I mean, there just there weren't a lot of narratives floating around. I mean, I guess your you know the choice was if you didn't want to do that, you I don't know become a witch or something. But that's just like becoming the opposite of what you were. So there's there there wasn't it's you know I think part of it is that you know the human mind's quest for for you know desire to have things explained to it to make sense out of everything this is this is this is what I think human beings are obsessed with what we're sort of wired to do so watch me talk about something I don't know anything about but nevertheless um but I think that it's well. I, I've observed people, you know, learning as college students for you know forty years. So it's always interesting to see what things people retain and what things they forget. You know, people will often remember the more sort of unusual things. But but people like you know they that, that's that's why a good story works because a good story lays everything out and tells you how to weigh things and how important things are. But human beings always want to make sense out of everything. Everything has to make sense. There always has to be some particular reason. Maybe there is, but then there's also that sort of scary other idea that there there isn't any particular reason. Things just happen, and there's no other greater cause in them. There's there's nothing else being demonstrated that all the narratives we're, we're bringing up to explain all of these things is really are just trying to make sense of our existence to ourselves. Hmm. Well, part of it, I think, is because humans <clears throat> like to predict the future so they can control the future oh. because it's yeah. survival. If you can predict what will happen and keep bad things from happening and make good things happen more often – that's where the narrative comes in because you want to influence your future in a positive direction for yourself. Well, we all want to keep living. <laughs> that's, that's just the main thing in terms about being able to predict the future is being and and you can you know if you pay attention you can see you can see patterns. I mean, what I think really what we're really good at is that we can we can lay out, we can create, we can see the connections between things. And it's um, 
here's something I don't know how this this applies to it or not, but if if you're walking along a trail, you might have been out. You ever run across a snake? Oh yeah. You've been out walking yeah. somewhere. All right. Well, generally, you see them immediately. I mean, snakes laying out on the trail. You know, if they're in the grass where I can't, but if they're out in the open, that snake is absolutely obvious. And on the other hand, I've noticed that my dogs who accompany on this almost never notice them. <laughs> that it's they'll they'll just walk right over them. They don't see them. And they also they, they don't seem to often uh, pick up on things, talking about dogs in this case, that don't move. Hmm. So there'll there'll be a bunny setting and I see that bunny. That it's right there. I mean it's as clear as day. The bunny might as well be pink and on fire. <laughs> but but you know, the dog as long as it's not moving and it knows this, you know, as long as it stands very, very still, the dog it's invisible to them. So, I mean, that's this, you know, interesting thing, you know, the sort of difference between species of sort of fellow creatures who, who re- literally live in a completely different world than we do. And, and yet, and, and it's this, but it's the same one. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe that just suggests that there, there really are on that, that level, I, I think, different realities. You know, dogs, cats, birds, whatever, it is, all, all live in a different reality than we do. We're all in the same place. And the same stuff is going on around us, but we're not interpreting it in, in the same way. And so humans are, and I think one of the things that sets snakes off is, is you know, the pattern, which in some ways is would normally camouflage them somehow in our pattern-seeking might makes them stand out. And so we always want to arrange, you know, we're always trying to arrange things. Humans are always arranging. We're always making lists. We're always putting things in order. You know, this is it. Let's make another list. And, but it's our way of, again, trying to make sense, trying to be able to predict things. And, and very often those things are right, but they can also be totally wrong. That is, we, we can begin, I think at some point, our obsession with creating patterns can make us see patterns where there aren't any. And then that's how, out of those patterns that you think you're discerning, you perceive that there is a vast international plot to poison you with vaccines or whatever else it is that they're trying to inject you with that week. Well, when the computer first came into vogue, remember there used to be a phrase, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out? Yeah, yeah. If you don't put in the right stuff, your conclusions will be faulty. They'll be flawed. They'll be erroneous. They'll be wrong. And it all depends on your substratum of facts. Where things differ now is that people are basically saying, those facts cannot be trusted. They're not facts. They're just opinions, and they're being manipulated for someone else's benefit in my detriment. And that's where we're developing this bifurcation of the culture that seems like, you know, one foot on the shore and one foot in the rowboat. It's not getting better. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And I do not see a simple solution. No, people aren't going to come to their senses. Aren't going to come to their senses tomorrow, next week, and I, I'm not sure there is any. You know, there's no turning back, really, unless you, you know, get rid of all the electrical power. <laughs> well, let's go back to the revolution. Let's go back to the American Revolution, okay. because what I'm intrigued with is there is one similarity between that era, which appears to be as far away from us as the pyramids. And right now, tonight, modern America or modern world, 
And that is that the American Revolution was guided by a few opinion makers, Payne, uh, Franklin, uh, you know, some other luminaries who wrote, you know, those, those pamphlets, you know, common sense. They circulated widely and wildly among those people who could read, who then in turn were able to influence the people who could not read because they were trusted as leaders in the community. And it only took about two or three percent of the colony of the colony uh, colonizers, the, 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 the people, the, the landed gentry, the, you know, the upper one percent, whatever you want to call it. And the revolution proceeded because of the influence of the written word. Now we're to a modern era where it's not just a handful of people. It's everybody is reading and writing on these social media and there are no filters. And it's like, you know, Katie bar the door. Well, see, this is what mass literacy will get you. (laughs) No, I mean, there, there were, you know, there were uh, uh, people in the 18th century, you know, the other side of the Enlightenment who argued that, no, you should never teach peasants how to read and write. Okay? You should never do that. You should never educate common people. Because, and I'm not arguing that we shouldn't educate <laughs> common people, but I'm just pointing out the fact that, you know, you know I, I, I can see where they were coming from in, in, in that point, and I'm not sure that what has happened vindicates it, but well, it's almost it's almost viscerally, Rick, at the level of the use of fire. How many people, yeah, yeah. when fire was first invented, killed themselves because they didn't understand its dangers? I think we're in the era of social media where most people have no idea how to use the medium and what filters to apply and go back to the thing I asked earlier. How do we know what we think we know? Usually because someone told us something. I mean, yeah, that's even in true. You know, I mean, look, you. There's always this assumption that if you go to some source and you find some, you find again a particular fact, and you know, it, it could be eleven or twelve or thirteen. You, you'll find variations in that. You'll find that there is no absolute certainty there. And on the other hand, you have a lot of things that masquerade as being authoritative, but really aren't. I mean, you know, unless you did the counting yourself. How do you know? You're just exactly. taking somebody else's word for it. And at what level do you basically give up and just go totally on your bubble in your belief in certain people? I mean, I was stunned the other day that there are like 12 people. One of them, a guy named Mercola, has more than half of the adherence to this anti-vaccine narrative that's out there with extraordinary leverage because of the Internet. Hmm. It's the it's the you know the ultimate bully pulpit. It's the you know anybody can go out and basically preach their particular narrative about anything, and maybe they'll attract uh, you know a few dozen people. Maybe they'll they'll attract millions. It it, it it if it if they're putting forth a narrative, there you go, telling the story, which is about if they're telling a story, many people, some people, a few people, however many find that appealing if if it seems to answer things for them if it, if it seems to give them a narrative that that conforms to their existing beliefs reinforces other ones that's the thing that they'll go with and i mean really at that point in most things um 
know, it comes back to don't confuse me with the facts. Don't tell me that something is, is, you know, this isn't true or that that isn't real because it, it, it has to be because, and, and this is, this is another thing in, in the way of often assuming that you're going to go in and you're going to do someone a great favor by destroying their entire belief system. And that is, I think that's not only one of the most arrogant things that anyone can do, it, it's also something which is almost always counterproductive and, and nothing really good is going to come from that. Because what it is, is that if you manage to destroy someone's existing beliefs, if, if, you, if you compromise that belief system degree that they can no longer hold on to it, one, they're not going to be thankful. They're going to be confused and angry and resentful. And then they'll just pick another one. Mm. All right. And, 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 it won't, and there's no idea that they're going to come around and pick the one that you think that they should have. But ultimately, in the kind of random walk of history, and again, I'm, I'm kind of leery of saying that because we're living in this totally new information environment, which we've never lived through before in certainly modern times. <clears throat> and I'm not sure where, you know, the random walk is going to take us because it doesn't seem to be leading toward, quote, truth. It seems to be leading toward a bifurcation of different truths depending upon which community you belong to. And you cannot have a democratic republic on that basis. It literally becomes impossible. Well, if you go back to previous elections, let's go back to the, the middle part of the 20th century, or I don't know, anything prior to about 20 years ago. <clears throat> you know, traditionally, you know, the, the politics, the, the game of politics that was played in the U.S., it, it always revolved around two parties. I mean, occasionally there would be another one, but who noticed and who cared ultimately? But there were almost though there was this kind of bifurcated system of power, and you know one party would be in power, one would be out, maybe one would hold Congress and the other the presidency, maybe they would hold both for a certain period of time. But within this within this this game, and it is a kind of game, it's it's a it's a performance, it's a kind of public ritual. Within this public ritual of elections and changes in administrations. There was always the basic unspoken understanding that if your party lost the election, you weren't going to go to jail or you weren't going to be stood up against a wall and shot, that you would continue to exist and you would be able to plan and come back. And, you know, in four years or eight years, you could retake the White House or you could you could do something else and 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 and, and, you know, and back and forth. Uh, the general policies of the two parties, let's face it, were you know, rhetoric aside, they all pretty much ended up doing the same thing. Um, none of that, you know, in terms of the basic policies, didn't differ. And, and as long as there was that kind of understanding of the ground rules of the game, that you get your turn, we get our turn, we can say bad things about each other when we're running against each other, but then, but then how somehow miraculously that's all supposed to come to bipartisanship, you know. It, I mean, that, I mean, it's one of those things, if you really think about it, you, you can see how, what, what the ritual aspects in this were, that it meant that if you were going to be able to really cooperate with each other later, after the election, if you're going to be able to live with each other and, you know, pass legislation, do anything, it means that you couldn't really believe what you said during the election, could you? You didn't really mean those things. 
okay, the world really wasn't going to end if, you know, Goldwater became president or if <laughs> LBJ became president. You know, you could imply – I don't know. That, that Daisy commercial was pretty damn convincing. Well, it was – but, you know, maybe that was the slippery slope that began there. But it was – you know, the, the, the concept was that, you know, it was going – that the whole process was was going to continue – that there was there were certain basic rules that would be played, but that it was understood that those those things that we said during the election, well, now that's over with, because one of two things has got to be fake. Okay, well, maybe hold it there. We're okay. at the we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician, in about half an hour. And you might be saying, what is a resident? metaphysician doing in a conversation on history because I think we've entered a kind of a metaphysical realm information overload how do we know what we know these are existential questions for I believe an existential time I don't think and we're going to get into it in the next uh, you know hour and a half some specifics of why we've been partly here before you know, this is not the first thing that happened on January 6th that threatened a fundamental physically violent revolution to the body politic, uh, uh, mainstream news sources notwithstanding. This has happened before, but it's not been grounded in the same existential information sea, which we're all trying to swim in before. We'll pick up on this in a couple of minutes. You're on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we'll return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available 
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Sunday night, July 25th, 2021. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. And we're kind of meandering around about this idea, how do we know? How does history know that, not that this and this and this happened, but why it happened? I mean, Rick, one of the things which is so paining to me is that part of this huge schism is over things that are so easily checkable, particularly with with the access to the Internet, like, you know, did uh, Biden win, did Trump lose? Um, this, this is not up for discussion if you have any connection to, A, the facts, and B, how to think about them. Because um, as someone who has organized things in my professional career, I know it's really hard to organize things so they go smoothly and there aren't hiccups and problems, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a whole cadre of people out there who are firmly convinced that somehow this election, this 2020 election, was stolen by the Democrats and that Trump claiming he's still president is telling the truth and that Biden saying he's president is is lying and he's going to be removed in office somehow and Trump is going to be reinstated and they haven't a clue as to the practical logistics of pulling something like this off with literally tens of thousands of individual polling precincts, poll workers, state chairmen, state uh, election officials, secretaries of state. In other words, the gargantuan organization effort to pull this all off and then do it with no fingerprints to where 80 separate court cases, including a large number in front of Trump-appointed judges have all said uniformly it happened and yet there is this amazing number of people who basically say when they're led through this litany of of logic and evidence you're lying the numbers are all made up trump won biden lost and it's an illegitimate situation we're in right now and nothing will disabuse them of that non-fact well, because that's not the one that they want. But on the other hand, a number isn't a fact either. I mean, it's it, let's put it this way. It, it would be <clears throat> rigging elections are done. Uh, doctoring vote counts can happen. That's not to say that they routinely do, but they can happen. So, I mean, that's not beyond the realm of possibility. It could happen. But, it could, but, could it, all, but hang on. But could it happen yeah. – at scale. See, the key word that I've been looking for, and finally someone the other day said it, was consequential, you know, vote irregularities. 
You always have noise. You always have, I mean, I forget which election where they found 60, in Pennsylvania, where they found 16 yeah. fraudulent votes, and they were all for Republicans, people voting their dead mothers, et cetera, for Trump. Uh, but 16 out of several million is not consequential. Again, we're back to the to the, 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 the belief system that there are absolutes, that there are absolute numbers, and that, you know, um, if it was stolen, there had to be an absolute number where the number's being hidden because it was it was stolen. Therefore, of course, they're lying to us, and it becomes a tautology. It goes around and around and around, and no one touches base with the simple fact you cannot organize this on that scale and have it remain a secret. Unless you did. <laughs> well, but then I mean, we, 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 we can't say what people can't do. Okay, you can't really argue that that it would be impossible to pull off a a voter manipulation squad because at it scale may be a, it may be a remote possibility, but it still exists as a possibility, and therefore it exists as a possibility. Once again, the truth comes down to a range of possibilities, and you pick the one that you prefer. So you can either sort of wish the whole thing into the cornfield by saying that it would be far too complex for anybody to 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 play off, and and and, and I, I tend to agree with with, with your your saying this. I'm not really arguing with you. I'm not arguing that there was vote fraud. I'm just saying that it's one of those things that you can't prove didn't happen. In the inability to prove it, you can't prove that it didn't happen. And if people want to believe that, that's all that they have to have. The, the mere possibility of that sustains them. And it's, you know, and, you know, again, you also have to, I think, watch the idea that, well, it couldn't be done. It would just be too complicated, which sounds a lot like uh, people couldn't have built the pyramids. It's just way too complicated. It had to be aliens. It wasn't aliens. The Egyptians built them. And no, no, I, I, way, I didn't say yeah. it couldn't be done. I said it couldn't be done secretly. Because of the scale involved. It's like you couldn't pull off Apollo secretly. 400,000 people were paid to make Apollo happen, and it was so complicated that there was no way it could be kept a secret. You know, the idea of the later missions, the secret missions, the, you know, 18, 19, 20, those are nonsense, regardless of the YouTube videos, because of the scale that would be required and the conspiracy level of organization that would leak. Now, I know there are people who have claimed they have evidence of, of fraud. Yes, of course there was fraud. There's always fraud. The, the key word is consequential. And being very specific, um, there are folks that have looked at Pennsylvania, and they noticed like at 4 o'clock in the morning when, when Trump appeared to be winning, there was a huge sudden appearance of votes for Biden, you know, in Philadelphia in Pittsburgh, in uh, I forget what other town, whether you know community city, and they look to that and they point to that as you know vote dumping, secret ballots brought in from China, whatever, whatever, and they're ignoring the obvious, which is you had a huge number of votes, which because of the Republican legislature, in law made it illegal those votes before election night. And the reason they appeared suddenly is because at four o'clock in the morning, those votes got counted and they got dumped into the totals and mass because of the Republican 
legislation which forbid, like in Florida, they can count the uh, absentee ballots and the mail-in ballots right before the election. You can't do that in Pennsylvania. They point to this anomaly. There are guys on the web saying, oh, statistically it was not. Well, of course it was anomalous because of the way the legislature in law demanded those votes be counted. It did not mandate that those votes were fraudulent because with with a financial incentive. Can you imagine if anybody had actually garnered the proof that this was fraudulent, the amount of money they would have made by going to the magazines or the networks and selling their story and their proof, you know, the legal part of the situation, notwithstanding the 80 court decisions against even admitting this, you know, affidavit evidence because there was no proof to go along with it. The, The fact of the matter is that logically the scale of a consequential fraudulent 2020 election is as about about as remote as the sun coming up in the west tomorrow and not in the east. Well, you know, you can convince me, but you're trying to convince the wrong person. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I understand what it is that you're saying, but the thing is that everything that you've just laid out would roll off like water off the back of a duck to someone who is absolutely convinced based upon their selection of facts and their reality of the narrative they've chosen that the 2020 election was stolen and that Donald Trump is still the legitimate president. I mean, there's some very weird stuff out there. Uh, you think? Also, but you see, the reason the, the reason this fighting over the facts is crucial <laughs> is it's what led to January 6th. You have well-meaning people, real patriots, real people that believe they're rescuing the mm-hmm. republic from you know the perditions of the damned who stormed the Capitol on that afternoon, and who beat you know cops senseless based on the best possible motives that they were engaged in American revolution number two. They were saving the republic, and they were dead wrong. But that didn't change the facts on the ground of what we saw happen on television. It just means we have a huge number of people who believe that those folks were patriots and not insurrectionists, which takes us back to 1776. Yeah, and and those people aren't going to go away. No. So, and it comes back to the question you posed earlier. Then how do you? But I mean, in in some fairness, I'd argue that part of this part of the slippery slope that began this way is you know it went back to something we were talking about earlier. We're saying that under the traditional rules of American politics, of the political game, when one party lost, it got its chance to come back and do it again, and people said bad things about each other, but you know, no one was really supposed to believe those once the election was over. I think began to change gradually, but one of the ways that it began to change, um, there were people who, for instance, um, could never really get it around their head that Barack Obama was president of the United States. All right. That, that wasn't any kind of organized movement, but that was, that was something that was kind of out of, out of their, their wheelhouse. But then when Trump was elected, that was a gigantic shock to a lot. I mean, they just couldn't believe it. It was like they woke up and they were living on, I know you'll like this Mars, but <laughs> at any rate, 
you know, that, that, that the, the world had, had gone crazy. And then this started this whole thing about, well, I don't know, somehow the Russians must have meddled. That was it. See, Trump was, this was the old idea. Trump wasn't actually legitimately elected. It was all because Vladimir Putin had snuck into the dark of night and stuffed ballot boxes or something. They could never figure out what was going on, but they knew something was going on. And how did they know something was going on? Because Donald Trump had been elected, which shouldn't have happened in any rational world. So something evil or extraordinary or monstrous had taken place. And then that just turns around when, uh, you know, when, when Trump loses and then again, his faithful can't accept that was the case. And therefore it had to be for some other, there had to be some sort of massive conspiracy, which is taken away from us. And Joe Biden is dead or he's, you know, he's, he's being played by an Android. <laughs> yes. I've seen that. Oh, I've seen it all. Okay. Yes. It's out there. Um, and, but see, you won't accept that you lost. That's what it comes down to. They won't accept that they lost. And it was there were a lot of Democrats and others who, uh, when Trump was elected, wouldn't accept that, that Hillary lost. OK, that was just they, they well, would not, not accept to, that. Not, not to blow our own horn, yeah. but of course, I'm going to do that. This yeah. show predicted she was going to lose and that Trump would become president. We're one of the few sources of news that actually predicted it. So I was not surprised at all that Trump won because I watched the country. I watched the body politics. I watched this mm-hmm. rest of People are so tired of government lying to them, and government has been lying to all of us for decades, as well as corporations, as well as mm-hmm. TV commercials, as well as some of our best friends, and they, people got fed up, and this guy appeared like a guy on a white horse. Remember, mm-hmm. I alone can fix it, and so I was not surprised. What was surprising to me is that he didn't take advantage of the incredible opportunity and do something with it. Well, you know, like uh, leading his people into the Capitol building. <laughs> well, he I mean, that, that's, that's, I mean that, that's one of those. I mean, that Donald Trump would have come down and he would have led the people in that he would have been at the front of them and he would have marched into the Capitol at their head. Now, once he started doing that, I'm afraid that the Capitol Police and anybody else would have to stand aside. He's the commander in chief of the Armed Forces. And he promised them in that speech on the the ellipse that he was going to do it. And then he bugged out and went back to the White House and watched television gleefully watching what happened. And that's, you know, if if there was uh, the failure of his Caesar moment, I'd argue that was it. If he wanted to do it, if he he had led them, I'd again. I'm not saying that he should have, okay, but I'm saying that if he had, that was the difference is that, you know, it's one thing to stir people up into a revolutionary mood and then go go home and watch TV. Uh, there are a lot of ways you can interpret that. Uh, fundamental gutlessness is one of them, but that's not necessarily the only one, and perhaps that's fair or unfair, but that's the first one that tends to to come to mind. But it's the, you know, it's the difference between people who end up being a Napoleon and people who end up being Donald Trump. Although, okay, Trump may be exiled on an island. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe they will. You know what someone should do? And I'm going to remember, we talked to the world, so I'm going to put this out there. Some creative novelist should actually write a future history when that happens. Because my projection, Rick, is that if Trump had done that, he would still be president it would have changed everything there would have been no violence it would have been the mastery of the moment you know uh, uh you know uh, pence would have 
found problems with the count. It would have been thrown back to the legislatures. Um, everything would have been different, and there wouldn't have been a shot fired or a blow, you know, landed because he would have been he would have personified the leader they wanted. They desperately craved to fix what they saw was an incredible wrong. But it didn't happen that way. And you guys, historians, are going to have a field day for the next 30 years trying to figure out why the hell he didn't do it the way he could have done it. Well, they'll be arguing this even even longer than that. <laughs> um, probably we'll just go at you know, ad infinitum of people kicking various ideas back and forth, uh, none of which will ever be the absolute truth, but uh, it'll be many opinion. of which will probably contain part of it. It'll yes, be it'll good be old historian opinion it, based on, it, you know, we'll, we'll have much more information because we'll have a moment-by-moment moment TikTok on all the phone calls, all the emails, all the frantic tweets, all the desperate emergency calls. There, There's a huge record, which I'm hoping this commission will unearth, and put out in an unwashed, you know, version that will give everybody a view of the facts. Now, will that sway minds? Some, but I think you hit it on the head earlier in the show. It really will bounce off like, you know, bullets off Kevlar for those people who think he was stolen. Yeah. No, there will. You probably won't have much of an impact one way or the other. Because it will all be treated as just more fruit from the poison tree. Remember, the, the, the belief here is that uh, the entire Democrat Party, uh, their control of Congress, all of the, the, the people, the, the, the rhinos that they will then throw into this are all part of this general conspiracy or all part of have the same interest group. And that anything which emanates from them is, is flawed from the beginning. One of the that, things, that, nothing, that nothing they say or do can be believed. Exactly. And the mere fact that Congress, that a, a, a Congress which is hostile to Trump, and let's face it, for the most part it is, uh, with that nothing they, they produce is, is believable. So, let's, let's, let's turn the clock backward because I'm so tired of these network you know, opinion makers saying this is the first time this has ever happened. Take us back to 1894. And something called Coxie's Army. Coxie's Army. Here's another one of these little things that tends to get, uh, you know, tossed into the bargain bin <laughs> of, of American history. Um, the remainder pile. Uh, Jacob Coxie was one of these guys that uh, the, the U.S. seems to really do an excellent job at producing, which are, are wealthy men that then develop social causes, ideas, or various fixations. I like, you know, well... Uh, Coxie later on might have tried to go to space, but instead he decided that he was going to uh, try to, to bring about what he thought was a change in the American political system that was necessary. So we go back to, to the early 1890s. One of the things that happened in 1893 is the U.S. went into a depression, a very serious one. If you look at it, it's called the Panic of, of 1893. And banks fa failed, businesses failed, the U.S. Treasury almost collapsed. Uh, but but what, what that meant for most people, for the large number of people, was that they lost their jobs and there were strikes and riots. There was, there was a lot of discontent in the country. There, were, there was massive unemployment. Um, you know, a lot of people were, remember, this was the period where you didn't have food stamps or anything to go back on. So, you know, no, you could no, no safety nets if you were on your no, own. No, no safety net. net. Um, you know, if you didn't have a job, then you either begged or you stole. 
uh, or you wait to get another one. So what happened is that there was a great deal of discontent, uh, labor unrest throughout the country. Coxie was an interesting guy. He was a, he was a self-made millionaire, and he'd actually started out working. I think initially he was a water boy in, a, in an iron mill, and then later he branched out into um, – uh, iron re- recycling, iron scrap iron, and then eventually he got into the sand business. <laughs> so uh, Cox's Cox, entire fortune was built on sand in the sense of high silica sand that was used to make <laughs> glass. So There so is he definitely became, a, a, a metaphor there. <clears throat> yes, so he uh, he became quite wealthy, and but he also had political – he was a very um, – there were a lot of arguments if you go back and look at American history in that period about currency. And so you've got the Greenback Party and the Free Silver Party and uh, the the Gold Standard Party. And much of it had to do with, with how you wanted to – Oh, was to... this the, the year of the cross of gold? Yes. Okay. Um, so not too surprisingly, Coxie later became a big supporter of William Jennings Bryan, who's the guy who gave the cross of gold. But much of it had to do with it, the type of metal that you use to back the dollar because this made you know, money cheaper or more expensive. Uh, farmers were extremely unhappy about things. But what Coxie decided was that Congress needed to pay attention to all of the unemployed and the, you know, the, the people who were distressed by this. And so he, he created this partly financed but also became the main organizer for the idea initially of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of jobless men to march from all corners of the country and convene in Washington, D.C., where that would then convince Congress to establish things like, in many ways, sort of early ideas of like the, the New Deal, things like Social Security, you know, have a national pension fund, also the idea of the, the sort of free printing of money. Uh, or, and you know, not, not not tied, for instance, to gold backing, a larger money supply that would he thought would help. But but also the main thing he wanted to do is that he wanted Congress. This is in 1894 to appropriate 500 million dollars for a massive public works program. So this was his his, his oh my God. basic in 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 1894, 500 million was a that's fortune. a lot of money. Okay, uh, way more money <laughs> than they Trillions were going to come up with. Now. Trillions. Well, so, but that but that then went to his his his. Uh, the interesting thing uh, is that Coxie was also an early advocate of what we have now, which is fiat money, which is money which is basically advanced. In other words, there's a kind of line of credit which is issued to the treasury mm-hmm. that's not limited by the gold supply or by the silver supply. So. This is, this is kind of interesting. Coxie basically argued for the relatively modern idea of a massive public works program, and he said, yeah, we'll just finance it by printing money. <laughs> Which, De- see deficit, how the world has turned around. Deficit to, financing. To a, right, deficit financing. It, so it, he it, was it, really it, a, far ahead of his time. He, he was. He was a visionary. You know, he was a visionary or a kook. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, given well, how much has now come true, I would say he was a visionary. There was, a, but they see that's the type of thing you. That's why you got to pay a lot of more attention to to kooks in history because those are the people who often, who actually end up becoming the visionary. I mean, uh, Coxie had his other sort of, you know, he had. If you wanted to lampoon him, as a lot of people in the press did, it was relatively easy to do. He kind of played into that. But the thing is, is that his ideas, if we look at them now, don't really seem, well, massive public works program that you finance with fiat money. Well, that's pretty much what we do today. Um, 
But this was something new in 1894, and you know Congress was really not going to go for that. And the march itself was—it really wasn't one march. It was a lot. There were there were people who set off from L.A. and San Francisco and you know Salt Lake City. Most of them never reached D.C., um, but about 6,000 of them did, and they camped right outside the city. And this created a certain amount of consternation in official circles. Because uh, in 1894, D.C. was not really that big of a city, didn't have a huge municipal police force. And now there was this, you know, what is, you know you've got this, this army of like unemployed men, you know, angry or, or disaffected. And they expect, you know, they expect something is going to happen when they get here. We expect that we're going to give them jobs. That's basically what they were told. And now we basically have this army of the poor and dispossessed, this potential revolutionary mob. And let's face it, that's exactly what they were. Because you had people, you have to imagine the amount of belief that people had put in to, to go as far as they did in order to the ones who, you know, even if it's only 6,000 of them to actually show up there, they believed it. it may have been a completely, you know, unrealistic hope that anything was going to happen. Well, wait, wait, but how, all it in, would have in, taken. In 1894, the only way they could have been communicated with was through newspapers or the post, mail. There was no radio. Well, you got, you got, you got telegraph and, yeah, but and even telephones that, yeah, to some but, degree. Tele- telegraph has to have, you know, customers. You have to pay for it. If you're unemployed, you know, who's going to send you a telegram? Who are you going to send it? In other words, they had to be reading public media, newspapers, editorials. There must have been a groundswell at some there was. publication level that made all this kind of seem real to these people. Some, you know, papers. Well, the many of the others, what other choice do you have? I mean, here's, the, you know, here you've got... Uh, you know, Coxie and others talking about if if we, you know, it, it's really the old model. What these people were doing was the same thing you'd see in centuries earlier, whether it be a famine and peasants would march to London to petition the king. Because somehow, somewhere, there's 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 the king or there's Congress or there's there's a president, the emperor, someone there will, will listen to us. You know, it was always... We'll, we'll go – see, once we put our case before them, once they really see the troubles, once, once the king sees my troubles, he will be sympathetic and he will help us. You know, once Congress sees our determination and see that we've you know, spent all of this time wearing out our shoes, you know, we've walked maybe hundreds of miles to get here and to plead for their help, then they can't possibly turn us down. Well, okay, well, we're, we're at the top of the hour. Let's continue this on the other side. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert and I think Ron Gerbron, who, of course, is very finely tuned politically, I'm sure has a raging range of opinions about some of the things that we've said, well, that I've said. So he'll be joining us and we're going to open up the phone lines and you can join in this uh, conversation the first march on Washington, Coxey's Army, 1894. Interesting, 1894. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Midnight here in the land of enchantment, the witching hour. It's now the other side of midnight here. And we have been joined by Georgia Lambert, who, as I said, is our resident metaphysician. She actually spent a lot of time. You could go to the other side of midnight.com and look at her bio on the guest page tonight. She's done a whole bunch of interesting things, including spending uh, 10 years with uh, Manly Hall, which to me is very interesting because he was one of those really visionary metaphysicians of the uh, 20th century. And Ron Gerbron um, is going to be joining us momentarily. Um, so let me open up the lines again here and welcome Georgia. Georgia, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? I hear you five by. And we've got Rick Yay. Spence with us. Hi, Richard. Yes. I'm here. Hi. And Ron will check in. He will let us know when he's able to join us. Uh, before we get I'm back. here. Oh, there you are. Okay. Uh, before we get yeah. back to what Rick was saying, uh, Georgia... I know this is um, a kind of an intriguing question, but from the height of 30 to 50,000 feet, am I right in saying that we really are at the existential level of what's going on has never really happened to us before, and people are not responding well to what is going on? Um. I probably think that it's happened before, but maybe not in recent enough history to remember. You know, we're we're at one of these change points. We've we've talked about this, Richard, in in other uh, sessions. But you know, humanity on mass is focused primarily in their solar plexus or their emotional nature. Most people have no idea what a thought is above and free of emotion unless they're a mathematician or a philosopher. What most people think of as thoughts, opinions about their emotions. And when change happens, it produces a stress in the emotions and people tend to react in one of two ways. And we see both in play on the the world stage right now and these two ways are number one people get into this whole nostalgia trip and they want to go back to the good old days when things were okay and right and and uh, even if they never really were they seem like it 
And so there's this movement to go back and make things like they were. The other side of that coin is the revolutionary impulse, which wants to say everything in the past is bad. Let's wipe it away and get rid of it. And usually that's without having anything positive to replace it with. So we have both of these contending forces in play on the world stage. And what we have to do is figure out a way to keep the essence and the progress of meaning that we developed in the past while we let the old forms, the outer picture of things, morph and change. Hmm. Okay, let me let me ask Ron. Um, you've been listening to the conversation. Any pithy yes. thoughts before we get back to Coxie? Uh, okay, yes. Uh, well, oh, on that, I just sent Kinthea a picture of Coxie's army, if uh, anybody's curious what they look like. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm here to attack everybody. First off, uh, <laughs> Mr. Spence, why do you hate ducks so much? You go from accusing them of collaborating and colluding with the Russians back in the Cold War to um, dumping water on them randomly. Um, I just want to let you know I've been, I've been listening to this stuff. And until Richard went completely off the rails with his political viewpoint, uh, <laughs> following, following along just fine uh the um yes okay I'm, well i i just wanted to firm your opinion up so we know what is waiting for us in the next few minutes uh rick let's get back to coxie's army what happened nothing <laughs> uh did the did there was there a massive public works program no no that did not happen the, the situation was diffused uh i mean the, the six thousand estimated i mean you're never getting an exact number on that was was only a small fraction of those that would that could possibly have shown up a lot of people started out turned back and therefore the two arguments was that often the way this is looked at is that a huge folly you know that 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 coxie stirred up a movement that he really couldn't control i mean there were legitimate grievances but he stirred up a movement in hopes that he really couldn't control, which ended up basically just being a waste of time for most of the people who were concerned in it. Uh, it did not get the results that they wanted. Uh, he did it again, though, in, in 1914. There was actually a small a second Coxie's army. Hmm. The really Probably the, the most lasting impact of it was the phrase, which I'm sure is now forgotten, but there may be those who would remember it, a phrase passed into American culture, enough food to feed Coxie's army. That's where if you thought someone had overcooked for Thanksgiving, there's enough <laughs> feed here. Because one of the things that would happen, remember, what you've got are a lot of guys basically on the bum, right, traveling from town to town, uh, and they're generally walking. So what happens when, uh, I don't know, 500, 5,000 unemployed guys suddenly show up in Podunk? Um, they're going to be hungry. They're going to need places to stay. Uh, you know, your anti-vagrant ordinance probably doesn't quite cover cover that. I mean, how do you treat these guys? Do you treat them as, you know, if, you, if you're the local sheriff, do you treat these guys as, uh, you know, poor guys who are down and out and you'll try to mobilize the community to help them or are you going to treat them as a bunch of essentially hobos uh, you're going to you're going to you're going to try to get them to move on as as much as as possible but it's 
the thing about the whole episode is that it's it's one of the it sort of sets a pattern which is which you can see reoccur in American history. If people really want to make a point about something, generally if they're pissed off about something, if they're pissed off about racism, if they're pissed off about the Vietnam War, marching on Washington has become the way, and, and it's now become this this kind of ritual. Now, how many people can we get to march down the mall? Because this you know, and the more people we can get there, this will even though well, however many people we get there will be an, an infinitesimal fraction of the overall population, the sheer scale of it will be impressive. But, you know, you can't overlook the fact that in, that in every large mass of people, especially those who are brought together under a cause, usually with a lot of emotions running around, whether things end violently or whether they end peacefully, there's always a, an implicit threat in the mob and there's always an element of intimidation which isn't used so one idea is to show how many people actually support us it will turn out but within that is a kind of you know uh you're showing your strength for a reason hmm okay um we need some more examples because we got a lot of them and nobody's paying attention they keep saying that january 6 was unprecedented talk about uh, the bolshevik storming of the winter palace well, I've got one. Bolshevik. Okay, let let Ron have one. Go ahead, Ron. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, this is something I dug up a while ago when we were going to do a different show. But the um, uh, in 541 AD, um, there were two things happened. There was a war between the Egyptians and the Persians, or the Achaemenid uh, Empire, and uh, the Egyptians got trounced, and that was basically the end of Egypt as a free state. But uh, from then on, except for brief intercessions. But there was also the introduction there at the Egyptian port of uh, Pelusium of a uh, well, the the ever famous bubonic plague, or at least the um, uh, Yersinia pestis uh, that's carried by fleas that uh, stimulates those things. And since this was under the in the time of the Emperor Justinian, who was otherwise doing a pretty good job of uh, pulling the Roman Empire back together after being savage, uh, various savage wars with uh, those horrible European tribes like the um, Goths and the Visigoths and so, the uh, uh, he had political enemies and they played up the plague as if it was his. So it's become uh, named the Justinian plague. And very recently, just like a year or so ago, some archaeologists were digging up evidence of these things, not with any particular goal in mind. They just wanted to define some of the uh, details of that time because anything that far back is hard to track. And they discovered that it was all wrong, that the death toll had been infinitesimal compared to what the claims were. And they said, how could this be? But it, I mean, it was definitive. You know, they would find small pockets like villages and uh, or where villages had been and so forth that had been ravaged by the plague and the outlying areas around there, nothing. And the big news story of the day, because it came from so far off, was reports that had come in from uh, Istanbul or Constantinople uh, that, oh, people are dying in the streets. They're lying in piles. They can't carry the bodies away. You'll still find this in the books. Well, there's no evidence of that in the graveyards or the uh, official records of such things or anything. It was political news. 
So they were playing. Uh, the power structure was playing against each other uh, with games that involved things like plagues, even back in the 6th century. I uh, just thought I'd throw that in there because uh, the, um, I really wanted to talk about car commercials. But uh, here's, a qu- here's a quote that I like. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm serious about that. Lies are a necessity. They are the source of meaning, of belief, and hope. Honestly, lies are sometimes the only reason I get out of bed. And who said that? that uh, Titus of Brassics, one of the major characters in that uh, apocryphal movie, Jupiter Ascending, uh, who basically owned several planets. But, I mean, it's, uh, it fits. If you pair it up with the Charles Force quote, Fort quote, it works perfectly, because I think we've gotten too unspaced with this. Uh, Fort said, I think we are property... I should say we belong to something, that once upon a time this earth was no man's land, that other worlds explored and colonized here and fought among themselves for possession. But now it's owned by something. That something owns this earth. Ron, I don't want to be picky, but what's the relevance of this January 6th and the idea that we have had many revolutions between the founding of the nation and, uh, you know, a few weeks ago? Well, fair enough, but I'm just trying to say there are always powers behind the scenes that are manipulating these things, even as news. I mean, if I, uh, for your part, you said at the beginning, as you said lots of times, that you wished for an epistemologist, and mm. you've been talking to one for the last two hours. I mean, that's what that's what he's been that's what he's been talking about is the way that stuff happens, not just what the details are. You know, there's a difference between truth, facts, and lies. And, you know, truth is what people uh, decide to accept. You know, facts are uh, from what they are, but you can misconstrue them and make that your truth. Okay, so let me – I was going to save this for the next half hour. Let me ask you point blank. Do you believe that Biden is president? Well, functionally – No, no. Do you believe he is legally president of the United States? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, within okay. the within the yeah within the structure of things, yes, he is. Okay. Uh, I don't I I don't I don't like him, and he's gotten awfully addled to that's have a, a job that's like a that. Totally but, separate, non consequential issue. Yeah. Is he? Was well, he, it's not non consequential. No, it is the question: Was he duly elected? Yeah. Uh, you asked if he was the if he was the legal president. Yes, he's the legal president. I don't think that the election was on the up and up. That doesn't reach a conclusion by itself. Uh, it just means I was one of the people that was up at four o'clock in the morning here anyway, listening to the five minute uh, updates on what was going on with the vote counting. And despite what you said earlier, uh, the idea that um, that uh, 40,000, 50,000 votes all for the same person would show up at any particular time in a batch uh, that that's beyond statistics. No, that's it's just not. I just laid out legally the Republicans in Pennsylvania mandated it would occur that way. There was no magic. The Republicans? Yes, the Republican legislatures literally forbid in law the counting of mail-in ballots, prior you know registrations and and votes until election day, and there's a huge backlog. So oh, the protocols were all messed up. Yeah, but no by but by that. by law they were messed up. So of course you had dumping of huge numbers of apparent fake votes 
because most of those uh, precincts reporting in were from Democratic districts, black districts in the major cities in Pennsylvania. And to any novice, someone not familiar with how the process works, it could look like it was fake, but it wasn't. As every court that was presented with this, quote, evidence, summarily kicked it out because it was not true. There was factual evidence to argue confirmingly against this as being fraudulent votes. Anyway, back to uh, back to Rick. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let, let's let's sure. talk about the Winter Palace because apparently uh, storming the center of power became a kind of a cause celeb around the world um, after uh, some of the American experience. Well, you know, revolutions often – in the French Revolution, there was a storming of the Bastille. And the, the Bastille was a prison. It was a symbol of royal power. There really wasn't much of anybody locked up in it. <laughs> it, it was – you know, it, but it, it, it wasn't the importance of the building. It was the, the symbol essentially that an angry mob could storm a prison and release prisoners against the king's will, uh, which, which did have an impact. It, it certainly helped uh, destroy the credibility of Louis and the monarchy, but – in 1917, the way the whole commie thing gets started in Russia is that the Bolsheviks storm the Winter Palace, and later the Soviet regime would create uh, paintings commemorating this event. And you can still see these paintings. If you go out and if you look at a painting, you go to Google Images, wherever you look at storming of the Winter Palace, mm-hmm. you'll see a painting, and you'll see uh, you know brave red guards with guns charging forward, bullets being fired in the Winter Palace. It was an actual storming of the building, which was the always love to point this out, not of the czar's government, which had been overthrown eight months before, but by the people, mostly the moderate socialists, who had overthrown the czar's government eight months before. So here's one of these things where you get into a kind of interesting terminology. So what basically happened in Russia by our calendar on November 6th, 7th, uh, it was the, the Russian calendar was October, which is why it's the October Revolution, uh, what happened was that uh, several thousand sort of semi-organized, not really soldiers, but Red Guards, workers' militia, under the orders of the Bolshevik Military Revolutionary Committee, began had began to take control of various key points in Petrograd, St. Petersburg, which was the capital of Russia at the time, not Moscow. That's why the city was so important. So they had already occupied the bridges. The city was on a series of islands, so controlling the drawbridges was very important to communications. Uh, They had taken over the telegraph and telephone exchange, uh, the state bank. And the Winter Palace was where the ministers of the so-called provisional government, the existing government that had overthrown the czar, that's where they had sort of retreated to, and there were a garrison of of Cossacks and some women soldiers and some military cadets that were supposed to protect them. By the way, the prime minister of that government, a guy by the name of Alexander Kerensky, had already skipped town, supposedly leaving to find loyal troops to come back. Now, you know how that's going to play out, okay? <laughs> so, yeah. so you're, I you're, met him you're, once. You know, yeah, you know, it's like, I'll, you guys stay here and hold down the fort, and I'll come back with the cavalry. Okay, that didn't happen. So the provisional government is basically toast already. So you, you just got the ministers of government that has no authority, the Bolsheviks, the Red Guards have already occupied. But the, but the final 
the final thing that Trotsky, who's the guy who's really organizing this, not Lenin, knew had to be done, is that symbolically you had to take the building in which the government had established as headquarters. That, that, was, that was this kind of symbolic element in the revolution. You had to take that. Now, in which the painting, is kind of what it, the guys involved in the January 6th event were trying well, to do. That's why, you know, the, the cap, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for a symbol of the republic, it's really not the White House. No. It's the president's house. So the Capitol, where the, you know, like the, the, they send it in Rome, the, the, the perceived center of political power, that's where that building has symbolic importance as to, who, as to who occupies it. But the paintings that you see that were later made of the glorious storming of the Winter Palace are another case of a, of a narrative which is created. So, so what happened was this. Um, the ministers of the provisional government were holed up in the Winter Palace. Kerensky had gone out of town to get the cavalry. Trotsky organized some Red Guards, not as many as he thought he had. Uh, and he was hoping, you know, he really hoped they were all going to show up. He was going to hope that the soldiers inside the Winter Palace weren't going to put, put up much resistance, which they didn't. And so it was, a, it was a kind of gamble, but there was no battle that took place. There was no battle. So if you see any paintings that show bullets flying back and forth, you know, guys with the machine guns, you know, firing at the Red Guards, that never happened. Oh. That whole portrayal is a complete fiction. Because but it was a hell place, of a story. But it was a, but it's a, but yeah, what do you want to see? I mean, do you want to see the real storming of the Winter Palace? What you're going to have is a picture of the Winter Palace at night. That's it. <laughs> All right. Okay. No one, no one wants to look at that. No, you want a battle scene. And it was, um, but you know, that, that, that's the, the story that sold. And so Trotsky was kind of, you know, the Red Guards showed up. They, they, the Winter Palace is just nothing but doors and windows. There's, there's, it's the most impossible place to defend you could imagine. And they, they mostly kind of entered through the basement. They found their ways into the basement. They were delayed there, many of them, because the basement contained an extensive wine cellar. <laughs> Therefore, um, had there been more wine available, all of the Red Guards would say, but better than that, they just sort of wandered around the palace some shots were exchanged with a few cadets uh, and they went upstairs and, and collected the ministers who I think towards the end were hiding in various bedrooms and placed them under arrest and that was it the Cossacks who were the only soldiers in the Winter Palace who might have defended the government took a vote and decided that they were going to remain neutral oh <laughs> um, and that they just weren't going to do anything and um, and then the the military cadets who were, were generally just that mostly uh, teenage officer cadets uh, weren't really weren't sufficiently trained. Many of them were unarmed. Uh, the women soldiers uh, were also largely unarmed. Uh, they were also terribly afraid of the Cossacks. Um, and the cadets, in some ways, were, were were trying to protect one from the other. So that there was it was it it was. There was no coordination on either side. There was no heroic defense. There was no heroic attack. There was there was basically just a, a new the new power in town forcibly installing its power by arresting the ministers of, of the previous government. But out of that the, the glorious legend of the storming of the Winter Palace was created. And it's one of those things that sort of I think crept into popular imagination outside of it. it it's still the way that if you see something portrayed about the Russian Revolution, this is what you'll think of, is that there was this great storming of the Winter Palace. There was some sort of like grand Bastille action that, that took place by the Bolsheviks. 
never happened. But the myth, that's, that's the, the all important, important element in that. Um, I guess some other cases, I've got some pictures up here in the images. Uh, the bombing of the U.S. Capitol in 1915 was not by an angry mob. It was by one basically crazy guy, which just shows you what one person can do. But he was, he was also pissed off about something. And he was pissed off because he thought that the United States was not behaving like a proper neutral during World War I and that it was being very, very unfair to Germany and that it was far too allied in its policies. And he was upset with Congress and he was going to demonstrate that to them on the 2nd of July, 1915, by you know setting off a bomb that contained three sticks of dynamite, which did some damage, but otherwise didn't really hurt anybody. The interesting thing about the guy who did that, who's usually called Frank Holt, is that his real name was Eric Munter, and he was a wanted murderer on the lam. Oh, so, so was it a yes. diversion? The uh, ultimate diversion, maybe? <laughs> well, I, I don't know how you divert things by blowing up the Capitol and then getting caught. But actually what he later did is he tried to assassinate J.P. Morgan Jr. Oh. Uh-oh. Yes, just – by literally going up to J.P. Morgan Jr.'s house, knocking on the door with a gun, forcing his way in, shooting and wounding J.P. Morgan, who then wrestled this guy to the ground. Um, so they have they this whole sort of battle. Uh, but then, but then Munter is one of these guys who's um, he's he's kind of a classic role model for the the American lone nut attempted assassin or. Uh, because he, you know, he set off the bomb in the capital. He had actually worked as a as a German saboteur. Um, he had some connection to the, the the German sabotage apparatus in the U.S. But he doesn't appear to have been working under their orders. He appears to have done this on his own. He had apparently murdered his wife some years earlier. Uh, then actually come back. He was a German instructor, a language instructor. And various people who knew who he was had had helped cover up this identity, so that was another kind of scandal. So, and, so and then technically, he, then he, then he killed himself by jumping off the tier in the in the jail. So, oh, there you go. So, but technically, it was that was the first physical attack on the U.S. Capitol in Washington, right? Since the British burned it. Uh, so far as I know, it isn't to say that somebody else – I mean, I'm sure damage was done. I think it was the only bombing which had taken place up to that point. Hmm. But it sort of set the train. Uh, then in the 1920s, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was like mainstream across the country. This was no, – nobody would ever in 1925 call the Ku Klux Klan a white extremist organization because they were uh, – you know, a lot of people didn't like them, but nevertheless, they were mainstream enough that they came not just once. This is a uh, KKK march in 1925, but there are others, I think, in 1926, maybe 1927. Uh, I think the one in 1925 had at least 25, 30,000 Klansmen all showed up in their best whites, and they marched down the mall in front of the Capitol. Of course, they weren't there to overthrow the government. They were there to affirm their patriotism. Also, by the way, to lobby for more stringent immigration reforms. But the other thing that they're doing, again, is that when you bring 25, 30,000 people there, they were showing their strength. Okay, make no bones about it. They were not there, as they saw it, to overthrow or threaten the government. And yet the element of not-so-quiet intimidation is there. Then in 1932, well, you got another another economic crisis. Guess what? There's another depression. Millions of people out of work. 
lot of angry, embittered guys without jobs, many of them World War I veterans. So back in 1924, Congress passed a bonus agreement. Now, remember, the First World War ended um, at least 4 million men had actually served in, in the uh, Army, uh, in the armed forces during the war. Um, there was no GI Bill at the end of it. There was no sort of payoff, and there was some sort of disgruntlement about that. So in 1924, in the flush days, you know, the salad days of the 1920s, Congress passed a bonus act, and it basically said that for every day you spent in service overseas, you got a dollar and twenty-five cents, and for service domestically, because half the guys who were drafted never left the U.S., that you got a dollar. Hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Right. We'll come back to the bonus army and the uh, precedence to the January 6th event, and we're going to get to January 6th in the next half hour, and if you have some phone calls, you can call us. I'll give out the numbers, and we've got Ron and Georgia being very quiet. We'll get to all of that when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, Monday morning now, here in the Land of Enchantment, July 26, 2021. My guests this morning are Rick Spence, who is a historian, George Lambert, a metaphysician, Ron Gerbron, a generalist with very particular political perspectives, and me, your kind of uh, opinionated host. And what I want to grapple with in this half hour is what I believe is, and I really believe, that we are at the edge of an existential crisis that is different and separate and apart from all these previous efforts at storming Washington, of bringing influence. And uh, Rick, I want to wrap up on the KKK because that, of course, is it leads us into the rather extraordinary, demonstrable, factual, extremist, white supremacy basis of the organized effort on January 6th 
that now the evidence that's coming out, including all of these uh, indictments of over 500 of the insurrectionists, is, is demonstrating, again, as part of a pattern. And even if history does not repeat, it seems to rhyme. So where do you want to go from here? The KKK. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I think um, I said pretty much all they in the 20s when they were in their heyday, um, when they were a semi-respectable organization nationwide, more in the West than in the Midwest than in the South, actually, um, they, showed, they showed their strength in Washington. Um, maybe the biggest demonstration might have had as many as, or presentation might have had as many as 50,000 attendees there. But this this was seen as something which was, you know, they had a political agenda, particularly one in terms of limiting uh, immigration, stricter limits on immigration, but also just a way of showing that we are here, you know, we're, we're a force to be reckoned with. There are this many of us. I think there's actually one picture of the march where you can say that we're here, 25,000 strong, Mr. President, just in case you didn't notice all these guys in white sheets and pointy hats marching in the mall, where, and that is, again, to uh, to intimidate or at least put the a certain fear of your movement in your opponents and the numbers that you can you can capitalize on. Um, now the thing I was going to talk about, and I can do it pretty quickly, is that the the bonus march was in some ways a kind of replay of Coxey's army. But but what happened is that Congress had voted this this bonus that was supposed to be dual it was like a bond you're issued and it would be it was redeemable in, in 1945 now of course what happened between 1924 when the bonus was passed and 1945 was the depression and now you're getting there was a lot of groundswell for arguing that look a lot of people are desperate out there they really need this money and uh Congress should should pay it off right now. They should just pay off the full value of all of these bonuses, which again would have been about, I think, about $3 billion, which President Hoover, Herbert Hoover, there we go, um, just didn't think that the U.S. government could afford. Uh, you know, I'll go by his accounting on that. It would have been difficult in the midst of a depression. And, but he also felt that this was also really just sort of clear blackmail because this grassroots movement had led to something called the Bonus Expeditionary Force, which probably included about between fifteen and 20,000 actual World War veterans, plus their family and other hangers-on. So in this case, what you got into D.C. was somewhere between forty-five and 60,000 people totally, about ten to 20,000 of whom at one point capped, actually camped out, created this huge Hooverville, you know, a bunch of homeless people moving into town, camping out down by the river on the Anacostia Flats, and they were not going to go away within sight of the capital. And this led some, you know, proper establishment to believe that this was an incipient revolutionary situation. And that unless something was done about it, that all of these miscreants down by the river were going to be a problem. And so first they were going to send in the D.C. police, which were completely inadequate to the task, <laughs> uh, being vastly outnumbered. And then they sent in uh, the army. And the army went in with six tanks and cavalry and troops and drove the people out by force and burned the shantytown. And that was the end of the bonus army. 
Now, there's an interesting thing that came out of it. There's a lot of spin that has to come out of, out of this. And throughout much of the country, remember this is 1932. This is sort of the, the bottom of the Depression at this point. A lot of people across America sympathized with the bonus marchers. Some didn't, but many did. The country was very much divided. Now, remember, you could either see this all as an example of lawlessness uh, and attempted mob rule and intimidation, or you could see it as ex- expression of basic uh, democratic hope. I mean, what was it that drew people there? But it's probably fair to say that the official narrative later had to find some way, had to look at a way to, in many ways, discredit this. So, again, you also have to look at the way in which the bonus march was treated subsequently in most history books. If it was mentioned at all, it's essentially mentioned much like Coxey's army in the sense of a kind of, you know, a kind of children's crusade, which is to say it was, it was, it was a kind of well-motivated act of folly. Uh, you know, all these people were basically just being silly and they should have stayed home and nothing was going to come from this and it was dangerous. The other thing which was brought up at the time in the immediate aftermath was that the whole thing had been instigated and infiltrated by communists. Now, this, this was going to come much more, you know, they, they, you know, 20 years on in the 50s, this was going to be a much more, but if you wanted to discredit anything, remember, in the U.S., if you wanted to discredit something, you simply argued that it was all part of a communist plot, that the communists were behind it. And in the case of the bonus march, that was part of the official narrative, that this was a grassroots movement, that most of the people involved in it were honest, law-abiding citizens, uh, but that the whole movement had been infiltrated by dangerous communist agitators who were going to use this as an effort to, to as a forcible seizure of the government. Well, we see reflections of this in this current bizarre it's not even an audit it's a, it's a fraud it going on in Arizona where they're looking with uv lights for bamboo on ballots that they claim this is a radical you know right wing claim that the communist chinese organized as a plot the takeover of the voting in Maricopa County by importing a whole bunch of fake ballots substituting them somehow for real ballots and that the way you find this out is you detect with ultraviolet light that they're made of bamboo. So the, the, the communist refrain has now come back decades later and is front and center in the middle of this current whatever you want to call it. Well, I think it all – but it also shows up in something you were talking about before is the, is the, the portrayal of – Rioters, demonstrators, uh, insurrectionists, uh, those who took part in the January 6th events as a bunch of neo-Nazi white supremacists, uh, which in many ways has sort of become our new communists. Okay, you can't get much mileage out of denouncing things as communists anymore, but if you, <laughs> the, minute, the minute you use the term extremist, see, that, that, that's, that's a term to me. I'm not defending extremism. I'm not combating it. I'm just saying that extremism doesn't tell you anything. The person using that term doesn't like that. That's, that's all it means. It's an, it's an insult. It's not actually a description. Because extremism, you know, how extreme something is, is a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of fact. Because no one could ever agree factually upon exactly well, what Well, you remember Goldwater's famous, Goldwater's famous quote. Right. 
in the LBJ Goldwater, uh, uh, you know, contest. Extremism in the service of liberty, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I want to give out some numbers. 917-889-8802. If you want to join the conversation, that's 917-889-8802. And I want to bring this up to the present, kind of, because I think you have some perspectives on January 6th. All of these previous marches on Washington uh, were basically, um, uh, what was the word, materially based. Economics, well-being, they were not calling into question the legitimacy of the government itself. And that's what I think is a first since the Civil War. You had a whole bunch of insurrectionists violent insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol with a whole bunch of hangers on that were kind of swept up in this fever, aiming specifically to change the government by abrogating the ceremony on January 6th around the Electoral College with Mike Pence presiding. And that has taken us into this existential realm because we can easily forecast what will happen in 2022 and 2024, when the House may be, in fact, under the Republican control, and most Republicans are voting, Yay. and most there's some noise from somewhere, and most Republicans are voting the idea because of their their base that Trump really is legitimate, and so what you're going to wind up having is a House which basically, if a, a Democrat wins, if Biden wins re-election in 24. They're going to declare it null and void, and then, as my grandmother would have said, the cat will really be among the pigeons. Well, you could be entering a phase where, where nobody is simply going to accept the results of any of any election. And, and I think that was one of the points I was trying to make before, is that in the, in the traditional game, the way it was played, win or lose, you simply accepted that and you went on and kept playing the game. But what's happening now is that people don't want to play that game anymore. Okay, they argue that the game is you, – you've now decided that the game is rigged. The game is hopelessly rigged against you, and you're not going to be a part of it. And if my candidate doesn't win, that is because – and that also, of course, isn't helped by the fact that you have relatively narrow elections, and you, and you don't have anybody who's actually elected by an electoral majority. True. Totally so true. it's it, – yeah, I mean, you've, you've got 20% of the electorate who you know, isn't swayed by either side and either sets it out or is too disgusted by the entire thing. And the other two parties are dividing or fighting over the remaining 30%. And, and you know, it's split pretty close down the middle. Uh, and you, you, so, therefore, you have a president, whoever they were, who would essentially have been elected by about a third of the electorate, which means that two out of every three people out there didn't vote for them. Which means that it's a it's a that's kind of a of a bizarre situation. One might even argue in some ways almost a sort of absurd situation, which has been around for for some time. Didn't but we have only, record turnouts? Even then, it's not. You know, yeah, but it's not. It's not is, more. It's not the majority of the country, Ron. It's a. It's a percentage of the country because most people, I believe, fundamentally think voting is irrelevant. I think. Uh, well, I, I would. I would love to point something out. I think that often, a lot of people sit out the election. There's an old saying I heard starting in my childhood: "Why vote? It just encourages them." 
You know, I mean, the idea that politicians are all crooked has uh, been around for quite a while. But in this case, there were a bunch of people that were so motivated that in spite of the uh, apparently stacked odds against them, just turn on the news uh, the, uh, to see if they're getting fairly portrayed, uh, they went out and they voted anyway. If you want to blame Trump for something, blame him for saying, you know what, you need to go vote. No, that's that's what he he didn't say that. He said, don't vote. For God's sake, don't mail in a ballot and, and, you know, don't show up like in in Georgia. He said, don't show up because the game is rigged. And that's why he said vote in. He said vote in person. And he said in North Carolina, vote twice. You know, so that's a joke. No, it was not. See, again, these are facts. He said, literally, you have to go and vote twice to make sure your vote is counted, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, I I want to bring Georgia back in here. Uh, Georgia, am I overstating things or do we face an existential crisis in the future of this country if in 2024 the House of Representatives under Republican control can declare the winner regardless of who wins? You know, I think that that we're up against something that we haven't dealt with before, and that has to do with this ability of humanity to make its own reality. You know, uh, Richard was talking about the storming of the Winter Palace and the mythology that uh, arose around that particular scenario. Well, On January 6th, uh, we have the same kind of thing with one major difference, hours and hours and hours of video, you know, TV showing exactly what happened. And yet, even with all of that, look at how strong this uh, myth-making scenario happens happens to, to unfold. Even even with the, even with that evidence that everybody saw, well, but look Georgia, they have been assisted and abetted by opinion makers like Ron Johnson, who called them tourists, like that congressman from Georgia who called them tourists. Well, and and what, then there was video. Then there was video afterwards showing him barricading the doors with both Democrats and Republicans who were terrified of losing their lives against the mob. And this guy weeks later says, oh, they were just tourists. They obeyed, you know, walking between the lines in Statuary Hall. In other words, the myth for a exactly. huge percentage. But what, what's the basis of that in, 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 oh, I use the term, metaphysics. We have entered an existential period where facts right. do not matter. Exactly. And your examples uh, just uh, uh, illustrate the the point I was making, that even with the factual video, uh, we've got this tremendous movement to remake the story. And um, this is going to be a real problem. Georgia, I'm sorry. Could you give an example of what's on the video that is so definitive about something? Just pick something. I just uh, want to get a perspective how, on what you're how, saying. How about the cop that was crushed in the door that was screaming? That wasn't true. You have a video of it? Send it to me. It's been all over the world. Of course there's video. But 
you have a problem seeing video, so you'll see. Yeah, but stills. I don't have a problem with. What about the fellow that was beaten to a de- death with a fire hydrant or a fire extinguisher? No, that, that did not happen. happen. No, thank you. Okay. And, it, yeah, and, and 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 it was corrected. But there was a guy named Fanzone who's been all over Capitol Hill who was beaten with an inch of his life, tased to where he had a heart attack, and he still is suffering post-traumatic stress, and he, they won't even meet with him. Here's a cop who is trying to save their lives, and the Republicans will not meet with him. Hmm. They're mostly, the politicians are mostly concerned about their own skins, not somebody else's. Well, but we used to live, Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, but we used to live in an era where military personnel serving the flag and the Constitution and cops serving the flag and the Constitution were icons of the political class. The one thing you could do to ally yourself with your base was to buddy up to cops and to the military. And now we're in Never Never Land where even that is no longer true, given that the cops of, of, on Capitol Hill, you know, the Capitol Hill police, they were the victims, you know, of incredible uh, bodily injuries, eyes gouged out, hands broken, uh, uh, unspeakable things done to them, and the Republicans won't meet with them. So what's the meeting supposed to accomplish? A face-to-face, you know, aggressive grievances. You know, you go to Capitol Hill to meet with your representatives, talk about what you want to see happen. And these guys, you know, were making the rounds trying to get the bilateral commission, you know, where they would have a group of independent people from both sides, esteemed Americans who would, like the 9-11 commission, sit in judgment after facts were funneled to them and figure out what happened and why it can never happen again. And Republicans refused. They refused to meet with the widow of the cop who did die, uh, Sicknick, and his mother, because it was politically disadvantageous to their base who want to believe a different narrative. We are now in unprecedented territory. Your exquisite litany of previous you know, marches on Washington notwithstanding, we are we are in the twilight zone here. Well, uh, somebody a- said that he just made a speech, and five people died because of that, and they don't remember their history that one man made a speech and six million people died. If it was anybody else, they would be up on charges for involuntary manslaughter because he started the whole thing rolling. When you say he, you mean President Trump, and this well, is Keith Morgan who's talking. Uh, yeah. yeah. How did that ha- How could that possibly apply? He was giving the speech when what you're describing was going down. Go back to your videos and look. He wasn't there, and he said he gave peacefully. the speech before. He said peacefully. He said peacefully over and over. It, yeah. No. Yeah. The people that were there with Trump didn't leave until the speech was over. That's not true. You know were, how, hang on. You know how we know? How do you? You know how we how know? How do we know? We, no, have, no. we have a private contractor in Washington. I'm forgetting which at the moment, which, which institution, which agency. But what they do is they have been tracking cell phones. And there is this wonderful animated map 
showing the movement of people's cell phones from the rally to the Capitol before Trump even stopped speaking. And you can see the dots migrating in real time with a TikTok timeline because this is an unconstitutional monitoring of people's cell phones for location and place. Somehow it was made public and you can visually see like a, a, a huge swarm of ants. They began breaking away from the rally and moving toward the Capitol even before he stopped speaking based on who had come before who talked about trial by combat, that was Giuliani, or that congressman from, from California, Gosar, who talked about the necessity of shedding blood. So there was an absolutely modulated encouragement of an insurrection, which from the data we can see took place before Trump even stopped speaking. He invited, he incited he should be responsible. And he told them he was going to be at the head of the line. He said, we will march down Pennsylvania Avenue and I will be with you. And, of course, he wasn't. Uh, Rick, we have, a, we have a few minutes left. we got about seven minutes. You wanted to talk about January 6th, putting it in perspective against this history. What were some of the things you wanted to point out? Well, I, I think that's been pretty well. I'm not sure what more I get. I get a really end you know, and just listen to your conversation. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking any sides of the conversation, but I think often what you're really talking about here, once again, is you're arguing over narrative and not facts. Um, everybody I did, I, tends to be picky, picking things that tend to support their narrative and then refuting ones that don't. So it's a, you know, there was, For whatever there were, there was a, a mass of people on January sixth gathered in Washington because they felt that in the American tradition they felt aggrieved over the situation. They felt that their candidate had essentially been robbed of an election. Whether or not that is materially true and the basis for it doesn't matter. That's what it was. They believe that's what that's what put them there. Then you can get into all kinds of questions about what Trump said and then what he meant which is very often the case, I think, much of the way what you're talking about, is that there's an inferred meaning in what he said. So someone can argue that, no, he didn't mean that, that he said this, but he didn't mean it, or he didn't mean it. It's, all of that is a matter of interpretation. It's not a matter of fact. Okay, It's a matter of what sort well, of let what me, it let, means. Let what me, hang on, hang on, Rick. What, Rick right? I, I do like facts. I love facts. I'm a scientist. Yeah. I like facts. Before January 6th and the weeks leading up to it, as the rally was being put together, he specifically in one of his tweets said, come to the rally, come to Washington. It will be wild. Now, uh, my definition of wild is not a rally or a political speech. It's where things happen. It okay, will be wild. Now you're putting your definition on it. That's your definition. So you're, you're making – and I'm not defending Trump's behavior one way or the other. I'm not a lawyer for him or against him in this case. But here again, what you're really talking about is what did he mean by that? Okay, When he said we're going to – and it'll be wild, what did he mean? Did he mean that there's going to be a riot? We're going to storm the Capitol? Or does it mean – or you guys are going to do it, and, and I'm not um, – 
Or does it just mean, well, hey, according, we're going to have a wild, like, is it Vegas wild or is it insurrection wild? Well, according, again, politics is 99% perception, right? According to the emails from the Proud Boys and the three percenters and those people that have now been indicted uh, for having invaded the Capitol, their own emails interpret his pre-rally tweets exactly that way. We're going to go to the Capitol, we're going to raise hell, we're going to stop the steal. That was their big banner, stop the steal. You don't stop the steal with words, you stop it with actions, and they chose the sixth because that was an action moment when the Electoral College vote would be officially proclaimed. We have a caller on Skype. Let's see what someone else has to think about what we're talking about tonight. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Richard, how are you? Um, hang it in there. Sign in. All right. Name and tell us what you want to say. All right. Yeah, this is Jason in Pennsylvania. Hi, Jason. So, um, it sounds like you 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 you've made your conclusion and decision, but I don't think you've gathered enough facts from independent sources, including the fact that uh. The Proud Boys and all these other quote-unquote insurrection groups have been proven to be infiltrated by the FBI and intentionally uh, ahead of time planned with uh, insiders to uh, make it look like the peaceful protesters like us that believe in uh, grievances to be addressed and and to be peacefully marched across, uh, you know, uh, just like Martin Luther King uh, and and many others, Gandhi have always talked about. So there are very nefarious forces of the CIA and uh, whoever you want to call uh, Pelosi's uh, actors behind the scenes that have told the police to stand down, disarmed them the day and, or two before ahead of time, and, and the, the eyes and boots on the ground from the peaceful protesters that have shared their perspectives from being there. They saw that there were a, there was a, a large group of military uh, trained trained. We're we're going to have to pick this up on the other side. I want to thank all my guests tonight, including my caller. Uh, this conversation is important. It should continue, and it will continue on the other yes. side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll be back next week with two again, hopefully pioneering shows. And until then, remember. Third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Mm-hmm.